Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. What's up, what's up, what's up? Just that I go for it a little bit. What's What people are missing with that is the fact that it, before you did it, you backed right off the microphone in a very sort of professional... Mm. Concert singer sort of way. Funny that. It is. Can I say before we start, two things. Um, we have just started then. Yeah, but, uh, but before we start properly. So, uh, playlist. There are two things that I want to go on the playlist, but the first one is most people. Okay, there's no. You can't just decide. You can't just say, no, I, know. I would like this to go on the no, playlist. No, I understand that. Mm-hmm. So, that's why I'm saying it now because then you can think of a way of working it in so that it can go on the playlist. I was looking at some. I was looking at a a, a a video of an interview related to one of the films that came out uh, that comes out this week, and uh, and I was uh, distracted by a sidebar which was um, Billy Idol's "Dancing with Myself," which I haven't heard in years, and I played it, and I think it's one of the most brilliant pop songs ever made. I can't think of any way of working it into the. No, program. I can't either. Oh, thank you. Did you like it though? Isn't it a great record? I mean, I'm not a Billy Idol it's, fan. I think okay. he's. I think he's. I think Eyes Without a Face. No, Les Yeux Sans Visage. No, yeah. But they, and apparently, apparently, Eyes Without a Face was indeed written after after reading an article about Les Yeux Sans Visage, the Based film Generation X. No, we don't want Generation X. We're going to have King Rocker, which is not much good. Into the Valley of the Dolls, which is very boring. All the best stuff he did was all was all solo. Because then what happened was I did Dancing With Myself and then I watched um, the Rebel Yell video and then the White Wedding video. Night day for a white wedding. Yeah, I know. And I know it's cheesy and all terrible, but Dancing With Myself is a really good pop song. Mm. Well, well, let's see. If, no. if, if it occurs naturally in It's not going to occur naturally. That's the reason I'm bringing it up. So what we'll do now is we'll just... We won't put it on and then what will happen is if next you week... Close your eyes, bunch, yeah. you, if you close your eyes and wish really hard... Okay. Keep going. <laughs> That's a guitar riff. It's a bass riff. It's just fantastic. It's just, is this not... You crashed the vocal there. You have to, it's the law. Fantastic. Well, it's not fantastic. It is. It's, it's a really, really good pop song. It's perfectly acceptable, but it obviously meant something to you at the time. No, I remember. I remember the NME reviewing it, and I was me expecting them to be sniffy about it, and them saying, you know, actually, it's a really good pop song. We all know what it's about as well. Um, it's a really good pop song, and it is. It's a really, really good pop song. Much as I think Billy Idol, you know, is ridiculous, it's brilliantly ridiculous. Okay. Well, you prefer White Wedding, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I reckon. And Eyes Without a Face. But anyway. Eyes Without a Face is rubbish. White Wedding. Yeah, that's fine, but Eyes Without a Face is rubbish. Here is the best name, probably, that we're going to get on the show today. It may well be that other people uh, email in with top names. But if you got the chance to meet, or, it, no, in fact, if you got the chance to be Noah Potash in Boston, yeah, you probably would choose that. I mean, okay. your name is fine, my name is fine. Hi, I'm Noah Potash. Really high. You must be really important. I just wanted to write in response to Mark's request last week for a passing reference to Whitworth Park. 
Oh yes, why yes. Did you, why did you say that? Because we, we were talking about um, uh, halls of residence, and you were talking about tossle, tossle, tossle flats. Okay, so this is your so Whitworth Park. Although can I, I just interrupt you very quickly and say actually oh. that Dancing Myself was originally recorded by Generation X, so it's not a solo single. So I take back everything I said about it being a. So it, it is a Generation X single. There's Let also, me know when we've moved on. I, I'm just saying because otherwise people will say you're getting your Billy Idol trivia wrong. So anyway, carry on. Tossle flats. Uh, I gonna... have finished, yeah, but I'm just saying this because otherwise you know what happened. People... Are you still going to be looking it up, though? No, I'm finished looking it up now, but I'm just, yeah. you know, I think there must have been two versions. of Anyway, going to carry on. He's still going. OK, fine. Noah Potash continues, although I went to university in New, York, in New York, I spent one semester studying at the University of Manchester, where I did indeed live in a slightly dour flat in Whitworth Park. Moreover, it was in Whitworth Park that I discovered Wittertainment in an interview with Mark in the student newspaper. Really? I was delighted to have found a critic who despised Transformers 2 as much as I did, and I quickly became a follower of the church. Your reviews and back and forth <laughs> were one of the highlights of my rather rainy and grey time in Manchester. You imagine that, he had a rainy and grey time in I know. Manchester. Thanks, Noah Potash. Uh, Simon Oldfield in <laughs> Adderbury. Uh, I'm an LTL and an FTE. Anyway, invariably listening to the podcast over the weekend chores uh, in and around the home. So last Saturday, bright and sunny morning, I was minding my own business when I was suddenly transported back nearly 40 years to my boyhood bedroom doing my A-level homework to the John Peel show on the radio. I too heard him play Sultans of Swing because we were talking about this last week on yeah. the Straits. Uh, for the very first time, and remember, wow. as I do, I remember his pithy instant critique. Well, he can certainly play the guitar, but I'm not sure he can sing. I remember him saying precisely <laughs> those words. As you said, this did not stop him playing the record nightly for several weeks and until it had reached a wider audience and recognition. So thank you for sending me back on my time travels last Saturday. Who needs Interstellar? Right, indeed, so. Oh, that's very good. That's uh, a very good uh, time travelly reference. So uh, here is a very interesting... Uh, Email. Yes. It comes from uh, Shanak in Dublin. Okay. And uh, it's a little bit, you know how sometimes we're accru- uh, accused of being self aggrandizing? No. It has just been, okay. you know. But I think this, I think people will forgive us this story just because it's a very interesting one. Thanks for the email, uh, Shanak. So this may not constitute a wittertainment miracle by anyone else's standards, but it's turned my life around completely. When I was born, I was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. Though I've had it all my life, when I was about 10, things escalated and I started having seizures every night, about two or three at my worst. My dad blamed puberty and maintains things could have been worse. The worst part about what was happening wasn't the migraines, days in bed or constant medicine, not being able to see my friends or go to school. It was the fact that at night I'd feel really scared and alone, kind of like the kid in Babadook, actually. Wow. I was scared to sleep because I knew if I, if I slept, I'd get sick and have seizures and not even remember, which makes everything even more terrifying and alienating. As it happened, the insomnia was lonelier and ended up making me even worse because my body was so tired and that stressed, out and, and, and that stressed my brain out even more. About a year ago, my dad introduced me to your podcast and we started listening together on our way to my appointments. He downloaded the entire back catalogue for me. Now, that's a lot of listening. <laughs> that is a lot of, that's a Laura, Laura listening. Laura, Laura listening. And when I couldn't wait for, for the weekly trip, I started listening at night when I couldn't sleep. Now, I'm not going to say that your show cured me because I'll always have epilepsy, but it made me feel less on my own every night. I think it even kept my dad up with me laughing. Mark's Danny Dyer impression, Simon's Fuzzy Bear, <laughs> and crying the review of Toy Story 3 
all night. Mostly, it just felt like having a friend there with me, telling me it was okay and distracting me from the stuff that was getting me down and even just making me smile for the first time in ages, even though these friends were two strangers wittering on about mise-en-scene and other things (laughs) that I had to Google. (laughs) After a couple of months, I was even sleeping better since I was sort of looking forward to going to bed and curling up with a good podcast instead of indulging the anxious voices in my head. Anyway, I'm 13 now. And I've been listening for a year and I just wanted to say that finding your show was a wittertainment miracle for me, even though that sounds really cheesy. I've even been able to go back to school since I've been having less frequent seizures. School probably seems pretty lame to most kids, but if, like me, you sometimes have to lie in bed alone every day, it's actually the best thing ever to just feel normal. Plus, I really want to direct horror movies that don't suck and aren't remakes one day. So being able to go to school good, good ambition. gives me hope that I might be able to achieve that dream. So, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for continuing to witter. You never know how much a small thing can mean to someone, even if I feel a bit creepy writing this letter. <laughs> can you also say hi? Thank you to my dad. He's my absolute hero and has saved me and looked after me alone without fail for the past 13 years without ever complaining or charging me rent. <laughs> He's missed out on the national. <laughs> Uh, more than that, though, he taught me about horror movies and entertainment. So what's the betting that Shanach actually ends up as being a horror director? Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. You know, Guillermo del Toro always said that his, um, he, he, you know, who I think is you know, arguably one of the great uh, filmmakers of all time, but certainly sort of fancy and horror fiction. You've seen Crimson Peak, which I haven't yet. And I absolutely love Pan's Labyrinth. Guillermo del Toro used to talk about the fact that when he was younger, he was absolutely terrified of monsters in his bedroom. Um, and that this was kind of the inspiration for much of his, uh, you know, for much of his sort of later work. And he always talked about that, you know, in the long term, actually being a sort of fantastically positive experience and learning from that sort of, you know, that 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 uh, fear of monsters and things. That is a, a, a really wonderful email, and uh, and I, you know, I look forward to seeing what's the full name, so I can look out for the direct the directorial credit. Uh, Shunak P. Shunak P. Okay, so I will look out for that as a. We, we look forward to a first feature. Uh, up there in the sort of realms of, you know, Pan's Labyrinth and Babadook and uh, and brilliant. What lovely letter. Well, maybe should I can actually draw on that experience of being scared of going to bed. And all yes, that no, that, that's what that's what I mean. I mean, I think, think and, and, I mean, Guillermo talked about it, I mean, he's, you know, very, very openly. And uh, and so, and he, he he also told this story about that a, that a crucial moment for him, because Guillermo g- genuinely believes in monsters. He said, you know, I really do. And he used to be terrified of, of, of the dark and terrified of, you know, things that lived in a cupboard and terrified of things that lived under the bed. And he would tell this story about how as a kid, this, these, these terrors would, 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 would absolutely haunt him. And then he said, and then one day I decided to make peace with the monsters and make them my friends. And he sort of, he always said this was a defining element for him, was he decided, okay, I accept the monsters, I accept they're there and I will make friends with them and I will become, and when he said that that was the kind of the, the beginning of, the, of his incredible, you know, brilliant career, both as a filmmaker and of course as a writer and as an illustrator. I mean, it's, you know, the most fantastic imagination fired initially by that feeling of terror, by that feeling of fear. Well, Shana, thank you very much for the email. And I think, uh, and Tom Hiddleston's coming in on the show uh, in a couple of weeks time to talk about Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak, yes. uh, Or next week. So Tom Hiddleston next week and I've done the interview and we talk about... Am I going to like Crimson Peak? I wouldn't, I would never, ever presume. Okay. But... I'm very excited about it. Yeah. I'm very excited. Well, about I think it. that's the best way to go into okay, okay, okay. the movie. Anyway, Tom Hiddleston's going to be on the program next week. By the way, just on Schnack's point about curling up in bed with a good podcast, mm. I just I just want to mention another podcast. Oi! If this is going to be a Radio Two podcast? show, no, no, okay. no, no, it's not. Though obviously the Confessions podcast is tip top. Really, you can download. That's fine. Can you? 
How do you do that? So you, just you just do it. You just download it. Uh, no, here's the thing. So last weekend I was in Bristol and I went to see a show, which is a show entirely based on a podcast, right? And the yeah. podcast is called Welcome to Night Vale. And it's an American podcast. And my youngest is a huge, huge fan. And this, of the podcast. Of the podcast. Yeah. And this is like, it's like a radio, uh, and uh, Night Vale is like a community radio station in a made-up place called Night Vale, where all conspiracy theories are true. Okay. It's old-fashioned radio, but we were queuing up, we were queuing, so we're queuing up to, and I think, I'm mentioning it just because I think there'll be a lot of people who like this podcast, okay. who like Welcome to Night Vale. And it's called Night Vale. Yeah, so Welcome to Night Vale. Welcome to Night Vale. So we're queuing up to go in. Uh, it's at St George's in Bristol, which is a very nice place. Did you just get a thing in your headphones saying, where was it? No, no, no. no. Anyway, yes, you so did. We, you did that up. face, which is somebody just told you to say that. We're oh. queuing up and my son and I are the only people not in fancy dress. Okay. Oh, so what's everyone fancy dress? So, I, so I, say, I said to Joe, we're not in fancy dress. And he looked horrified. He said, it's not fancy dress, it's cosplay. I said, okay, is that, is that costume? Play? Yeah, anyway, so this is, there are characters in this uh, podcast and you come dressed yeah. as your favourite character. Jonathan Ross does that cosplay stuff quite a lot. Fine. Anyway, all I'm thinking is when we do our next live show, which is very, very soon. Cosplay. In London. Wittertainment cosplay. <laughs> you can come dressed. As what, As who? You or me. <laughs> okay. That's Not fairly limited. Or, or, or Jason. You can still apply for tickets, by the way. Can you? Anyway, I was just thinking... Because uh, it's not first come, first serve, is it, as you explained? Why not? You know, let's do some cosplay. I don't know why you want to come dressed as anything, frankly. But no, that... but the thing about cosplay is it has to be some sort of defined theme. Doesn't you can't it? just say just dress up as anything because that is just fancy dress. Cosplay is you have to be... You know, like when you go to Comic-Con yeah. and there's all those people who would... Yeah, there has to be some sort of theme behind it. Incidentally, just very quickly... Um, yeah, initially released in 1980 as a single by Generation X. In 1981, Idol remixed and re-released Dancing With Myself as a solo single, turning toning down its aggressive guitar and instead emphasising its power pop or rock elements. I just thought I'd point that out. If you had to come to it... We've so moved on. I know, but I'm so obsessed with that sort of thing, you know, with the, the detail. Let me know when you've stopped. Thank you, I have stopped. What would you come as if you came to our show in cosplay? You'd no, no, we're going to th- we're gonna have to think about this. How about to. how about the cosplay element of the show when we do it live? Is that I how, come no, as, okay. I come as you? No, it's sorted. It's sorted. Sam Mendes is going to be our guest, right. so it's going to be some Bond cosplay. And any Ooh. Bond, any ban, any Bond baddie, any James Bond. That's that's actually not a bad idea. We'll have to put this in the main show now as well, as well as the podcast. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Have you just thought of that, or did Robin say it in your? Robin. Ear? No, Robin said. Robin it. said it. Why doesn't Robin just have a microphone and come and sit in on the program? Because it would he would drive everybody crazy. Because he would take over. Because he would be, "Hi, I'm Robin. It's my show. I'm in charge." Is that is that how Robin? Oi, talks? Robin, sling it. <laughs> anyway, should we do the show now? Uh, if we absolutely must, have we fully cleared up the Generation X Billy Idol thing? Oh my goodness, Good. Me. It's us now. We're on. Do you mean oh righty ho then? Well, I just th- I just noticed that it's uh, it's simply top mate. You've gone completely. Um, Smashy and nice. Thank you very much indeed. So, uh, Hugh Jackman's going to be on the show. I don't think, uh, unless I've completely got this wrong, I don't think he's ever been on the programme before. Is that right? I think it is. I think it absolutely Did he not is. come? He didn't come on for Australia? Nope. What, all of it? Nope. Didn't come on for... Anything. <laughs> to the extent that I think he's been ignoring us. Anyway, uh, we are... Did you bring that up? Pan? No, I thought that might sound a little bit needy. You say, oh, hi, hi, hi Hugh. Now. Yeah. Now. Eventually. Now you come. We're a little bit busy. Yeah. You could just hurry up and but, tell us but about thanks. Thank it's only been... How long have we been going? Quite a while. Quite a while. 
you can get involved. 85058, mail at bbc.co.uk. The live action, wow. It's just, if you go on the website, you can just you can log on uh, and you can see us looking completely fabulous. <laughs> uh, just thought I'd mention that. Um, here's the thing. From you're, wearing your, you're wearing your sort of nautical T-shirt. Oh, no, no, not nautical. Um, French. French and nautical. French and nautical. I just actually... I want to continue a conversation. You do look like Tintin this week. Thank you very much. I take that. You as... do particularly look like Tintin. You this look week. like Captain Haddock, right? <laughs> so, is it we we've done the first part of the podcast? That was so puerile. I just want to continue uh, a conversation which we which we've we started. So, oh, yeah, yeah, just... yeah. So we're doing a live show very shortly. Yes. Uh, and it's in London. Yes. Tickets are still available. Go to the Five Live website. It's not it's... first come, first serve. You have to just apply no. and then there's going to be a random selection. It's October the 23rd. That's mm-hmm. when the show is. Uh, Sam Mendes is going to be there. The it's Sam Mendes. completely bontastic. And uh, what I was just explaining is last weekend I was at a, a show in Bristol. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the St George's in Bristol. Very nice venue. And uh, it was another podcast. I went to another podcast. A rival podcast. podcast. Yes. It's like well, seeing other people. And I, I think there is a crossover between our show and people who like Welcome to Night Vale, which is uh, an American... The other podcast. Uh, and it's a bit... It's uh, it's like a community radio station and it's set in sort of like the southwest of America where conspiracy theories are all true. And it's very strange. It's quite gothic. Right. And I I think there'll be a lot of people who like this show that like Welcome to Night Vale. Anyway, so there's the thing. A lot of people are doing cosplay. This is where you, 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 you dress up. Okay. <laughs> now, personally speaking... I can't stand fancy dress. If someone, if a good friend is having a fancy dress party, I would rather than probably not go. Okay, don't see, just don't see. Which point. is ironic because that's not what you said when the Radio Times asked us if we'd do a photo shoot for them and you wanted to dress up as Bond. And I just it. want to get a photo in the Radio Times. Oh, okay, know? so fine, fine. So you hate cosplaying unless there's the chance of publicity, anyway, in which I case just it's fine. For our show, yes. in a couple of weeks' time, if you come, and if you, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. I won't be doing it either. And I don't think for one minute that Mark will. However, if you'd like to do some cosplay and uh, dress up as any Bond or uh, any baddie or any... Goody, uh, goody, or a Bond lady, or a, then a Bond lady. Is that how they refer to? Anyway, if you want to do a bit of Bond cosplay, that might be quite fun for uh, for when we do the show. Will we have a prize? Yes. Okay. So there'll be a prize for the best Bond cosplay. Ba- it'll be a bag of crisps. Okay, that's okay. fine. Yes, and and a moment in the sun. <laughs> yes, that's right. Okay. Anyway, just had tickets to available. You go to the Five Live website, and if you want to do cosplay, then that's fine. And if you really think the whole idea is horrific join the club. I just love the fact that just because you've now heard the word cosplay, because you were told off by, yes. by, by, by a younger person for saying fancy dress, that you're now just going to keep using cosplay like you use it in, you know... That's the way it goes, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, yeah. I think so. But you are cosplaying as Tintin today. Thank you very much. Catherine... Urge's Adventures de Tintin. Please the call... crab with the golden claws. An email which says, please just call me Catherine or I might not see my son till Christmas. Which is interesting. It's oh, okay, okay, sinister way to start the show. Okay. On Saturday the third of October, so that'll be tomorrow. Yes. I'm gonna be listening to your podcast as my husband and I drive down the M six to drop our son off at university. This is Warwick University. He is a first year and will be moving into Tossle Flat. Tossle Flat. I know, says Catherine. Can you imagine how excited I've been with all the Tossel-related correspondence? <laughs> Slightly worried by the witch's coven, which you've been reporting, but hey, I think he'll be fine. Well, they do particularly like first years, Catherine, as you know. I made him listen to the first 10 minutes of last week's podcast. 
sorry, but all efforts so far to convert him to your church have failed, <laughs> failed miserably. Because I thought it was vital listening for a Tossel resident. Anyway, needless to say, I didn't get the appreciative thanks I thought I deserved. In fact, after he nearly smiled and shrugged, he walked back, <laughs> walked back to his pit, muttering something along the lines of, you might not see me till Christmas if you email in. Obviously, the chance to email in for the first time is worth the risk of alienating my son. If you're listening, only joking, son. So in the circumstances, would it be possible for you to say what's up to everyone travelling down to Warwick to drop off their darling sons and daughters, especially those heading towards the hallowed Tossel Flats and the Witch's Coven hidden therein? And before we leave that subject, uh, an email from Erin. OK. Dear Nonstop and Erotic Cabaret. Oh, actually, sorry. That's very good. It, actually, it's even funnier than that. It says, Is Dear it? Nonstop and Erotic Cabernet. <laughs> OK. Because this comes from New Zealand. That's, yes. That's yes, key humour. And this was a reference we were talking about. Although I'm not as accomplished as Jeremy Dillon, he of Sniddlegrass fame for many years ago, I do humbly offer my imagining of a trailer. Right? You ready for this? Because we've got yeah. the audio. Oh, OK. This is, this is a thing. This, this is, is a, a thing. Here comes a trailer for a new movie, which is called... Escape from Tossel 49. Coming this summer. Escape from Tossel 49. Tossel 49. Tossel 49. Our hero made it through Tossel 1 through 48. <laughs> but this time is different. This time it's... Tossel Flats. Oh, is it just Tossel? It's more than just Tossel. Much more. It's mystery. Danger. And retroactive stalking. A young couple attempts to escape their past. My boyfriend and I both attended Warwick from 2011 to the present. And now they're dead. But who killed them? The Warwick Illuminati. Give that another go. The Warwick Illuminati. Once more with evil. The Warwick Illuminati. There you go. Starring Fozzie Bear. Ah! Hiya, hiya! And Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte. Nick, Nick Nolte. How do you escape from Tossel 49? You just escape. I think you can never have too much Tossel. We'll see about that. Oh, and hello to Jason Isaacs. Thanks, Erin uh, Kahoa. Uh, for, for sending that in. Anyway, a movie with Fozzie Bear and Nick Nolte actually sounds... <laughs> the bizarre thing is, it was Tossle 46, so I'm not quite sure where Tossle 49 came from, but it obviously misled you, so you're going to have that's to... That's like Krakatoa East of Java. Yeah, just remake it, Erin, if that's OK. Yeah. Uh, box Very office... Good. But all other, all other student residences are uh, equally uh, valid. Mm. If you I don't believe you when you say that, but go ahead. So, box office top ten. We got Bill at ten, which I, I really enjoyed. I thought it was really funny. I laughed pretty much all the way through. And the lovely thing has been, so many people have tweeted to say that they went to see it and they they just thought it was you know a rip roaring romp all the way through. I think it works for young and old alike. Although oddly enough. Some of the tweets I've had from people have seemed to suggest that the the, the the oldies have enjoyed it more than the youngies. It's really genuinely properly funny. Peter Gillespie, uh, having loved horrible histories and most of Yonderland, my daughter Emma decided that my wife Sam and I could have the pleasure of her company in our local cinema in Loughborough to watch Bill. Very good. We laughed all the way through, rarely at the same things, nor at mm. the same times, but the rate of gags, visual, literal or guttural, was so frequent that everyone got their share at some point. Of course, some of them failed, and we did hear mutterings from behind about not getting it on occasion, but I would argue that family comedy is tougher than most. Keeping different generations of punters amused without patronising or alienating either is tricky, but for the most part, Bill succeeded. There were, there were bits in it 
and you should take this as the highest possible praise, and you will do. There were bits in it that reminded me a little bit of The Princess Bride, just a little bit. Yeah. I'm not saying it's The Princess Bride because only The Princess Bride is The Princess Bride, but there were little bits of the comedy that did remind me of that. Uh, number nine is Pixels, and an email from Kevin G. Conroy, who just says, how is Pixels still there? I know, I know. But you did that brilliantly, the, the way you sort of you inhabited that role. Do it again. How is Pixels even still there? I'm not even joking. Uh, so now we've got uh, The Empire Strikes Back, Secret Cinema. Which neither, number eight? neither of us have been to, although you and I were both involved in a conversation this morning with somebody who had been, because you were but saying, what, what, what is the thing? You were doing that classic. Uh, what, 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 what is it even about? And they, they, were, they were explaining the whole thing that you go there and there's this stuff and it's all. They said there's two hours of stuff beforehand and apparently you're not allowed to dress up as Darth. A lot Lady. of cosplay going. A lot there. of cosplay. Oh my goodness! Look, look at the way you just slipped that seamlessly <laughs> in. Do you think? Do you think some of the people in cosplay found themselves dancing with themselves? Do you think they did that? No. No. Almost certainly not because it wouldn't have been okay. right. Uh, the visits number seven. Continues to divide. I mean, obviously dropping down the charts uh, fairly swiftly, but I I can't remember the last time a movie proved so divisive in terms of some people love it. And I mean, really genuinely love it. Thought it was really funny, thought it was really scary. A number of people have written in to say that they, you know, they jumped uh, a couple of times and that they thought the whole atmosphere of it was really creepy. And then other people, myself included, just thought it was a complete washout from beginning to end. And, and as I said last week, it, the fact that I dislike it as much as I do is only one half of this equation because I am aware that if that any movie that's provoking reactions that are that polarised has got something going for it. So it is probably the... Well, it's demonstrably the case that it's Shyamalan's best work in a long time. I don't like it at all. I actually thought it was worse than Lady in the Water. Here but comes Rob Howells, who says, not wishing to guilt trip separated parents, but I think the visit depicts the horror of divorce from a child's perspective. It plays on the fear of being sent away to stay with strangers and shows the emerging psychological issues that develop in emotionally damaged children. There are no great plot twists, but some good creepy scenes, and I like the narcissistic mother's desperate attempts to appear happy. For me, it lands somewhere between the Babadook than Blair Witch, so not that bad. Yeah, you see, I, a number of people made that connection to Babadook. I'm just astonished. I mean, I think Babadook is a genuine piece of art. I think it's a brilliant piece of work. I cannot, for the life of me, see any comparison between the Village and Babadook, other than that the Village has got a kind of Grimm's Light thing going on, you know, with the grandmother and the kids and the grandmother saying, well, why don't you crawl in the oven? In that sort of, you know, fairy tale way that Shyamalan has done umpteen times before, incidentally, I think did much better in the village. But I, I, I keep hearing that. People keep making that comparison. I'm astonished that any person can love the Babadook and love the village, but they do. Dear the Do village, the visit, pardon me. Dermot Hanley in Galway. Dear doctors, the visit, it was OK. Best wishes, Dermot Hanley. OK, well, there we go. That's somebody who wasn't polarised by it. That was somebody who was just out after I said nobody is in the middle. This week's number six is Solace. Yeah, so we, 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 we kind of uh, got through this pretty quickly last week. So Solace is a really, really dopey serial killer thriller with a psychic twist in which Anthony... Sir! Anthony Hopkins is playing this uh, psychic character who can, you know, has these psychic powers, but therefore he's retired because he can't deal with the psychic stuff going on. Anyway, there are these murders, and immediately they have to go and find Anthony. And the joke is, at the beginning, when they turn up at his house, he's about to knock on the door, and the voice from inside goes, Come in! Because he's psychic, so he can see the thing 
thing. And then they have to get him to come and psychically lay his hands on these these murder things because then he can figure out how it's... And it is completely stupid. And Anthony Hopkins walks around doing that absolutely default post-lecture impression that he does, you know, although this time he's got this, this sort of mullety haircut, which I could not take. Occasionally, from behind, he looked like the head of Zardoz, which is never a good thing. And, uh, and there is a sequence in it in which, and I'm not making this up, in which he functions as a psychic sat-nav. He actually, they're in a car chase and he's doing the directions because he's so psychic, he can tell where the car's going to go. The next day. Yeah, so I want to get my, my sat-nav in a car. I've never had a sat-nav in a car to do the Anthony Hopkins. But it is absolutely all over the place. And then Colin Farrell then turns up. And the funny thing is, the appearance of Colin Farrell is meant to be a sort of twist, but he's all over the trailer. The, I mean, honestly, at the point that Colin Farrell turns up, you go, but the, I, you've been all over the trailer. Like, literally, the trailer is you and the poster is you. It's rubbish. It's a- absolute rubbish. And I'm sure that Sir Anthony must have earned himself a hefty wedge from making it because obviously he was also involved in, in, in producing it. But it was originally written, at one point it was punted as a potential sequel to Seven. And you and it you can you know it's it's so not seven. Chris Rogers says on the incandescently dull solace, <laughs> Anthony Hopkins <laughs> borrows right. Rutger Hauer's hair, but forgot yes. to ask for the talent too. He and Very everyone good. else in this film just plod from one place to another, and no one really seems that bothered that a man with genuine psychic powers is employed by the law. <laughs> powers are never explained. No one ever thinks to study him. Even the men in white coats never show up in a last-ditch attempt at drama. The characters are dull, the camera work is ruined by an icky grey filter, and the less said about the dialogue, the better. Yeah, the dialogue is absolutely toe-curling. Never seen such a waste of promising cast and premise. Good. Matt Baxter says, Solace is total bilge. <laughs> a rubbish straight-to-DVD thriller that inexplicably has major stars in it. It makes the mistake of taking itself very, very seriously. Very, very serious. And has an ending that's downright offensive. When your serial killer is more sympathetic than the numpty trying to catch him, your screenplay might not be the masterpiece you think it is. It's what my friend Duncan Cooper would refer to as TT, total toilet. Who's Duncan? Duncan Cooper, is, as I said, my friend. No, but Duncan who's, Cooper. Who, how do you know him? Uh, he's a friend of mine who I was at school with. He used to write the lyrics for the band that I used to be in. He what now they, lives in they Sweden. Called? They were called The Basics. The Basics Rollers. They'd have been good. No, they were just called The Basics. So, uh, yeah, Solace is at six. Inside Out's at five. Still in there, still hanging yeah, in. Yeah, and, and, uh, We've so done everything on there. Somebody, somebody sent me a, 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 an image of a betting slip that they had managed to place a bet somewhere on Inside Out winning Best Picture. And the thing I was surprised by was that, that they had managed to get sort of... But the, the odds were fairly low. It was like they bet £10, and if it came in, it was like 170 which means that it's not a total outside. I think it was like 16 to 1, which is not a total outside. So you never know, you never know. We may be on course for a, an animated Best Picture winner. Also, never forget that the Oscars are total nonsense and always go to the wrong person. Miss you already, is it number four? You know, I was... Uh, I, I was impressed by the screenplay and I thought that it was it was interesting that a mainstream comedy was as frank as it was ab- about its subject matter. I found to some extent the sort of the um the character that Tony Collette plays rather grating, 
But actually, the, one of the strengths of the film is that it allows her to be grating and it allows the character that Drew Barrymore plays to be, you know, to, to be rattled by her sort of constant uh, rock and roll lifestyle, even while all this uh, stuff is going on. The more I think about it, the more I think that it's real achievement. I mean, it is a really well-written screenplay. It's played very enthusiastically by the cast. Catherine Hardwick, I think, is a, is a, a terrific director and, as I said before, arguably did the, the best of the Twilight films. Um, it, it, there, are, there are certain things about it that didn't quite ring true for me. Occasionally, I mean, you see when, when you see the publicity, they're sort of playing up how um, how much it's about sort of you know love and life and laughter. It, it sometimes seems to be overplayed, but in general, I thought it was pretty decently done. And I do think its heart's in the right place, and it and it deals with some very difficult subject matter in a way which is refreshingly frank and open. Did we have any let yes. emails about it? Okay, so. Can I just ask you about? You called it a mainstream comedy. Yes, is that really? How you... oh, oh, sorry. Well, comedy is probably the wrong... Well, I mean, OK, so that's the... I mean, it's a drama. It's a drama with, yes, with comedic elements. Absolutely, that is the wrong word. But, of course, if you saw, if you see the trailer, it is all sort of playing up a lot. And, of course, when, when uh, the two stars came on the programme... You you know you were you were saying what's it about? And they said well it's about love and friendship and all that sort of stuff. And it would actually they were very much da- you know up playing up the sort of the, the friendship and laughter aspects mm-hmm. of it rather than the the fact that actually it's you know it's about dealing with with life changing illness. Uh, Lynn Woodcock, I saw Miss You Already with my four month old Owen at a mum and baby screening at the Leeds Bradford Odeon. Apart from the odd short cry, the babies were definitely better beha- <clears throat> better behaved than the average crowd. The film did make me cry, but overall yeah. was enjoyable, yet forgettable. Tony Collette is brilliant, which audiences have probably come to expect. Her performance is just the right amount of over-the-top to bring this not particularly likeable character to life and get the audience's empathy for some pretty awful behaviour. I couldn't help but notice that, as usual, the film was about an impossibly well-off family. How many people could really afford to get a black cab from London to Yorkshire? <laughs> also, although it's lovely to see female friendship portrayed so well... When will we see a mainstream film that features a properly supportive couple? The main couple in this completely failed to talk to each other at a time of crisis as if they've only just met. Um, do you agree with that? Uh, well, I agree about the... I mean, we mentioned last week the black cab bit. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that bit, does work. That bit doesn't work. And it, that, that is the most sort of... Yeah, that's the bit that doesn't work. I imagine that... So she finds it impossible to talk to her other half when she gets the diagnosis and it only emerges uh, a few days one imagines uh, afterwards and then he you he uh, sort of makes a few missteps in their relationship as a result which you know they don't speak so i you know maybe that's but but the the paddy concert on drew barrymore um axes that i thought you know counterbalances all that i mean you you i think you felt the same way as i didn't you liked it in general yes i did I, i liked it in general i just wasn't Quite so. Sh- I didn't like the the birth. I thought the birth bit, the Tony Clay bit, the uh, Drew Barrymore bit, wasn't quite so necessary. And the music didn't help particularly. Okay, quite. okay, okay. But a good, you know, but a good film uh, and well done. And you and you agree that de- dealing dealing very frankly and openly with a subject which actually cinema hasn't been great about dealing with. Yes, uh, Carl Webster. I am a crier. Uh, the older I get, the more easily I cry. Any display of compassion or empathy, in what is generally portrayed as an increasingly cold and uncaring world, is liable to set me off. I am, according to the version of manhood offered by your recent male train wreck correspondent, a weak and unmanly man. <laughs> Miss You Already has strong female characters, not strong because they treat men like doormats or Labradors, but strong because they're real. None more real than Millie, masterfully played by Tony Collette, who, despite the common canonization of cancer victims in fiction, is at times a genuine pain in the bottom. Yeah, ex- exactly, and actually plaudits to the movie for, you know, for, for playing that up. Like most of us... 
At the best of times, Millie is constantly struggling to overcome the fear she craves to conquer. And in the midst of that struggle with fear, Millie can be incredibly annoying, as can we all, whether we have cancer or not, but maybe especially when we do. For me, it was wonderfully refreshing to see a cancer sufferer retain their total humanity, warts and all, and not be immediately subsumed by the disease. I totally believed in Millie and Jess, and so in an almost deserted Peckhamplex on a Saturday afternoon, I cried my enthusiastic heart out for them and everyone who knows them. And I left feeling grateful at such an honest and candid look at something that uh, one in two of us is likely to suffer at some stage in our life had made it to the screen. Very good. Bold, painful, funny and unsentimental. Carl, thank you very much uh, for that. So the Maze Runner Scorch Trials. Let me just do this from... Neil, due to illness, my 12-year-old daughter was in danger of total ostracism from tween conversations unless I took her to see the new Maze Hunger trial scorch run film. <laughs> now, Dad, I want to go now. Not being in the target demographic, I wasn't expecting much. And the same age as Mark, and indeed was studying in Manchester at the same time as him. Really? Wow. Strange. However, about 10 minutes in, a nod to Tony Hancock's blood donor sketch piqued my interest. Really? What followed appeared to be a group of young people being chased through various film pastiches by the purveyors of a youth-orientated alcoholic beverage. Prison Break moved into Zombie Apocalypse, followed by Mad Max Thunderdome, with a touch of Omega Man thrown in for good measure. A bit long, but not entirely unenjoyable. There you are, that phrase again. Not entirely unenjoyable. And wondering what might happen next. I asked said daughter if I could take her, if I should take her to see part three, to which she replied, shh, let's get out quickly. There might be someone here who knows me. So I'll wait for the DVD, because how embarrassing you have to go and see that with your dad. Can you imagine? imagine that. Uh, Legends at two? Uh, worth it for, for, for Tom Hardy's performances. Somebody raised the question of whether it was possible for Tom Hardy to be nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor as, uh, you know, as the Cray twins. Um, the film itself is complete flibberty gibbet uh, stuff and nonsense, which has very, very little kind of connection to reality. And a couple of people have raised this point about, you know, is it all right to have a film which is basically sort of glamorising criminals? And absolutely, if you are looking for a serious analysis of The Craze, actually The Craze, the movie with uh, Gary and Martin Kemp, does a better job. What this does, as the title tells you, is it treats the legend of The the, the Craze. And at the centre of it are these two great performances by Tom Hardy, um, one of which is sort of, you know, weirdly uh, meant to be sort of, you know, engaging and enigmatic and attractive. The other one is completely crazy. And I do think that there are elements of, uh, of, of that character which are played deliberately, comedically. They do, you know, I think the echoes of Matt Lucas are not entirely uh, unintentional. Um, but so the, the film is big and noisy and brash and the, the narration makes no sense whatsoever. But I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it as a piece of as a piece of fluff cinema with a very good central performance in it. But it it's not a real story, and nor, nor I think is it attempting to be. The UK's number one is Everest. Adam Brown on this Everest was well put together, was tense, exciting, all the right places. Difficult to quantify why it wasn't great. Possibly in its pedestrian and matter of fact presentation is Adam's opinion. But Everest is number one. Well, I mean the the. the the criticism which has come up many times about uh, about Everest is that one of the things that the film does is it sort of relegates many of its women characters to the role of being on the end of a phone waiting to hear what's going on. Although despite the fact that actually they have, um, you know, the Japanese climber who is famously doing the, the, the Seven Peaks thing. And uh, it is certainly true, as you yourself said, the thing, this, historically this is, this is what happened. Although the film's focus is actually quite manly. But... 
I think that in the middle of all that, there is, um, you know, a terrific performance only Watson doing the, actually doing the sort of the mission control, the ground control thing. And she, there is a moment in it, which is the best moment in the film, which has got nothing to do with any sort of spectacular uh, visuals or, you know, precipitous drops or anything like that. It's the moment when she's on the radio and she realises that they're not at the, they're not at the bottom of the step, they're at the top of the step. And her just, just, just does this expression, which, you know, speaks a thousand words. That moment in the film, I think, was actually the, the, the most dramatic moment. The rest of it, it's, it's very solidly put together on a technical level. It's, it's just, there, there is a, there's a certain, there's a certain sense about it that it's trying very hard to avoid falling into cliches, although there are certain cliches that it can't because of you, because of the way the story itself un- unfolds. But it's, uh, I think, on a technical level, it, it didn't stay with me much afterwards. I mean, you saw it as well. Yeah, no, your I, feeling? Yes, I thought it was uh, very. I thought it was very enjoyable. Told uh, an intriguing. Enjoyable. Story. I mean, but it's it, kind of grueling. Well, yes, it's grueling, but it's an enjoyable movie. I thought the 3D actually did work. Um, I. My doubt, as we mentioned before, is only about the fact that it's not an incredible story. It's a very no, sad story, but it's not. It is, it is very sad and very tragic. And there is part of it, which is that it is just like watching this horrible unfolding tragedy with that, you know, because you, um, and again, we had the whole question about how much do you know when you, you know, when you go in. And uh, somebody said, somebody accused me of being a plot spoiler because I said it's about the 19, you know, tragedy. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's what it is. That's why they made it into a film. film. Sorry, there we go. Uh, Here's a prediction. It won't be number one next week. Oh, because next week, number one is going to be... Almost certainly it'll be The Martian. Martian. Don't you think? I do. Uh, Ridley Scott was on the show last week. You can listen again. You can get that podcast uh, still. But our guest uh, this week is going to be Hugh Jackman talking about Pan. Uh, When are you going to do The Martian, by the way, just so I can prepare? Uh, I think we're doing The Martian just after after 3 o'clock. Just after after 3 3 o'clock, because we're after 2 o'clock already. Talking movies till 4 o'clock. I've been asked to point out, by the way, uh, that when we do our live show in a couple of weeks' time, the whole cosplay thing, it's not a competition. Okay, so I withdraw the packet of crisps. Uh, it's It's not in any sense competitive. If you'd like to turn up dressed as a Bond character, then feel free. Uh, there'll be loads of us who are just dressed in normal clothes uh, and we'll all coexist and we'll all mingle and we'll all get on together. This is all a result of me saying, is there a prize? Yes, that's right. OK. And when you but do I need that, to go on a course? There was an instant committee meeting called <laughs> uh, and this has been handed down. Sorry. There's, there's no prize. OK. But it might be fun. Here's the thing, though. What if you're the only person that turns up in in cosplay? Oh, I almost said fancy dress. I almost said the F word. <laughs> the F <FD laughs> words. Uh, that, that's the thing. What if no everyone else is just going, no, forget that. That's ridiculous. I'm just going to go in my normal clothes. But one person comes dressed as odd job. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not going to go no, very well. But the best thing would be, what if that's what happened? But then it turned out they weren't in cosplay. That's just how that's they just dress. How they are. Anyway, if you fancy doing it, uh, there are still tickets. If you go to the Five Live website, uh, it'd be nice to see. And Sam Mendes is going to be part of the show. Uh, And who knows what else might be happening. Anyway, if you were going to do a pan cosplay, that would be pretty extraordinary because it is, of course, uh, part of the Peter Pan story. How did Peter become pan? That's sort of the issue. Uh, Hugh Jackman is our special guest. So let's start with a a little monologue from Mr Jackman uh, as Blackbeard. Sweet! Gentle children, you who weep molten pearls of innocent tears, dry them, dear Nibbles, for I have sprung you from life's cruel dungeon and hereby grant you liberty. 
Come unto me, you are And that's a clip from Pan, and I'm delighted to say that Hugh Jackman uh, has joined us on the programme. Hello, Hugh. Good morning. Good afternoon. I, I, I've lost track of time. We're in Neverland. There is no time. Well, maybe, it's okay. Well, you know, maybe we should say in the spirit of, the, of, uh, of your film, hello, 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 with the lights out, it's less dangerous. Here yes. we are now, entertainers. Yeah. <laughs> I feel uh, stupid and contagious. <laughs> you know, now are you reading those? Because I'm impressed. Well, it came back once. Uh, a lot of people go, why are you quoting Nirvana to yes. Hugh Jackman about a Peter Pan movie? Yeah. Do you want to explain? Yes, so (laughs) I I play Blackbeard, uh, the pirate, and my entrance, um, there's a big long speech where I'm uh, welcoming, so to speak, all the new arrivals, the new boys, including this young kid called Peter, who's come into, uh, into Neverland. So I come out there and we were doing rehearsals, and after about the third day, Joe Wright, the director, came and handed all the pirates the lyrics to Nirvana's Teen Spirit. And he, and he does quite a lot of sort of improv. So I was like, yeah. oh, maybe we're doing another improv. And he said, no, I think this should be your entrance. And I was like, yes. that was. I mean, that is a day, Simon, I will never forget <laughs> as long as I live. Hundreds of kids stomping their feet, yelling and singing lyrics to the song. They have no idea what it's about, but they're singing anyway. And, it, and it's become like a, like, a, like a musical, theatrical number. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I, I guess it's sort of one of the first instances you go, okay, because up until then it's been mm. sort of Dickensian in a World yeah. War II kind of way, and yeah. then it becomes Mad Max, yes. and, and everyone is, <laughs> everyone's singing Nirvana. There's no rules, and I, th- no. I love that about Joe. He, you know, Neverland, as he sees it, is a child's imagination. So you can do whatever you want. There's some quite sort of esoteric at times sort of really interesting choices he makes about lighting or costume or or the rules of the world which are none really um and so to start with the nirvana teen spirit song that a pirate enters wearing this kind of a wig samurai wig and these massive costumes that can work and so he's sort of setting the ground rules right from the beginning and late uh, and later on you sing the ramones Yes. Blitzkrieg Bob, which yes. again, you're thinking, this is fantastic. Though I do okay. think if you're going to sing the Ramones, We're a Happy Family would have been... Oh, uh, okay. I'll tell Joe that. Would- <laughs> there was a slightly embarrassing moment when, after we after we filmed it, the sound department said, look, we're going to actually have to record a few of the pirates because there's so many voices, it's hard yeah. to actually distinguish. So we went into a, a sound booth and we had to sing the Nirvana song and the Blitzkrieg Bop song. And after I sang my first take, I, I heard from the control room... There was the guy comes on. He goes, um, okay, Hugh, great. Uh, it's just <laughs> sounding a little Broadway. Uh, <laughs> I think maybe as a pirate, I said, yeah, I got it, I got it. It's contagious. I think I was all a little bit legit. Well, I, w- I wondered if it was, you know, there's a little bit of the old Melbourne musical Hugh Jackman coming out here, isn't it? I mean, it, you are you are playing. Oh, yeah. Yes. You're, you're playing him as a bit of an old-fashioned ham, aren't you? Yeah, completely. He's a bit of a ham. Not a bit, a lot of okay. ham. There's a fair bit of scenery chewing going on there. Um, and, you know, because we kind of decided that he loves it. I mean, he loves being Blackbeard. He loves putting on the costume. He loves being in charge. He loves putting on a show and everybody looking at him. He's also really moody and grumpy and probably lonely and sad underneath it all. But in that moment of being in front of thousands of kids that's his moment to shine and he wants to shine what was joe wright's idea about playing blackbeard because mm. i 
it occurred to me halfway through that you kind of reminded me of King Herod. You know, it was uh, the, the, yes. that, that's how you were playing it, really. Yeah. Not that we know much about King Herod, but you know what I'm saying. I do know what you're saying. Uh, I actually, when I met Joe, I had weirdly, my son was into uh, National Geographic, like, you know, read there all the time. And so the current um, issue that we had, the junior National Geographic, so this may not be the deepest research I've ever done for a part, had this whole section on Blackbeard. So there was this amazing picture of him, and he used to put incense inside. This is the real Blackbeard, obviously. He put incense inside his beard and would light these sticks on fire before going into battle. So like when that. he jumped onto your ship, it looked like his head was on fire, right? This was his form of intimidation. And I said this to Joe, and he was like, mm, no. <laughs> uh, and he had a picture of my face with kind of white cracked makeup on my skin and the wig of Marie Antoinette and the costume of Louis Fourteenth. And he said, this is how I see Blackbeard. And I was like, that's a much better idea. Done. So, he, you know, we just, he, we just went for it. His idea was that whole costume, the look, the shaved head, I think was 90% Joe. And yet, I mean, it would be easy to say it's a pantomime piece mm. but actually it's quite you are scary and mm. just before you come to be dealing with peter in this scene where you've just arrived to the nirvana song mm. there are three kids on a like walking the plank yes. and you kind of execute the first yes. and you bounce on the plank and this kid <laughs> falls presumably to his death yes. so it's, it's not just hey, hey and laughs and custom no pies. no it's sort of i mean he's having a blast i think he He's convinced the kids that this is fun, but it's actually quite macabre. And I think actually all the best fairy tales, and if I remember back to when I was a kid when I first saw The Wizard of Oz, if you think of the Wicked Witch of the West, I mean, that kept me up for weeks, I think. Yeah. Those monkeys tapping on the windows and, you know, I, I think the child, a, And the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You exactly. Know, so. And actually there's a little bit of the child catcher in this <laughs> in that what we decided was the scariest thing to kids is when adults are moody, when they are one minute super charming and giving you something, the next minute they've got a, a knife or a sword to your throat or just ignore you. It's For kids, not knowing where they stand is probably the most frightening. And I wonder if you... I mean, I, I think I'm right in saying there are only two references in J.M. Barry's original to Blackbeard. So it's, and it's the pirate that all pirates fear and... Is that about it, or, or do we know more? The, I only know of one, um, but I'm interested now you say there's two, but there's one, um, the pirate that all pirates feel, it's true, I think he writes that about Hook, doesn't he? And they use that for Blackbeard. But okay. there is one line in the book that says that Captain Hook learnt his trade as the bosun for Blackbeard. So I think the writer saw that one line and took it and ran with it. And so that is why Blackbeard appears in this origin story as kind of the main villain. Tell us about Levi Miller, who, mm. uh, who's the kid who, who has appeared from Noah. I think this is his first, first yep. movie, Turning Up His Power. I mean, what a tough gig. But uh, he's, he's, every, every scene that he's in, he's fantastic, isn't he? Which is great because he's in every scene. <laughs> <laughs> I think literally every scene. He, he's phenomenal. Joe, I, I'm Joe not Wright's sure. got a good record on finding these people. Yeah, I mean, Joe, and he's wonderful at working with them because he, he creates an atmosphere that is not pressure-filled. It's fun and it's relaxed. I mean, acting is actually, it's natural to kids. I mean, anyone who's got kids, you can hear them in their rooms sort of acting. They're playing bank robbers and, you know, whatever it is, um, cops and robbers, et cetera. That, it, it just naturally fall into it. It's as adults or all of a sudden with pressure or... 
you know, we're going to come in for a close-up, let's make this the one. All that sort of stuff yeah. is what brings sort of this self-consciousness to people. And Levi just had this natural sense about him. He's just a natural actor. I see, I mean, kudos to, to Joe and the whole casting team for finding this Brisbane kid who put down a tape, presumably in his living room at home, you know. Um, and he's phenomenal. I remember turning to Seamus, the, the camera operator and DOP, and it was after this beautiful scene he did and there's tears running down Levi's face at the end of this take and I said this I just said this kid he goes don't say anything don't say anything he has absolutely no idea how good he is just don't say anything and in, in a way that's true you know he he was just being and Joe created an atmosphere where kids could just be kids and and Levi is just a special talent I think the whole world's about to fall in love with him because for all the high tech and the extraordinary sets hmm. you know tick on both if you don't get the the character's right. If we yeah. don't believe in Pan, yeah. we're, we're not going to go along with the movie, are we? Yeah, of course. And the story is called Pan. And Peter, this young boy, Levi Miller, he breaks your heart and he takes you along with him. And he he's just got that kind of charisma on screen. I don't know what it is, but every time I've seen the movie with people, particularly by the end, there's a tear in their eye and they just sort of see this little boy who's looking for his mum, you know, and for all the adventures and sword fights and bravado that Peter might have, in the end, it's just this little orphan boy looking for his mum. And that's and it's really heartbreaking. And I love the, the little touch whereby we, we see visually that he can't read. Yes. But he can read fairy. Okay? Yes. And, and we see that visually as well, which is, which is really beautiful. But both my kids are dyslexic, actually, and both of them were like, look, he's dyslexic too. You know, I think they, they really enjoyed that part. But there's a lot of little touches in there. I love the bit where they're in the Mermaid Lagoon and, and Hook, who's just James Hook at this point, is just you know, dangling his hand in the water. And, <laughs> and yet, as an audience, everyone's like, take your hand out of the water, take your hand out of the water. <laughs> you know, everyone kind of knows. Sort and of, he's nice-ish. Uh, he's nice-ish, right? He's sort of like a lovable rogue at this point. And it'll be interesting to see how he slowly turns into the Captain Hook we all know and hate is or there, is love there, to hate. So is there more? I'm sure. I don't think there's a I don't think there's a Hollywood movie with a budget north of ten million dollars where there isn't someone talking about a franchise, right? <laughs> but I think, I, for sure, in this one, I think it was always sort of planned in there because even though the characters have come a long way and by the end of this movie, Peter has become Peter Pan, it's still not that fully assured, cocky. You know, Peter Pan that you know from the story and, and Captain Hook. Yes, he becomes Captain Hook, but not the Captain Hook that you know from the story. So there's a fair way to go. We've wanted to have you on the show for a very long time. I'm glad it's actually worked out for this movie. But I remember mm. we talked about Real Steel on the show for, yeah. for, for many, many weeks because there are lots of kind of robot movies that were around. But you managed to make that movie really something special mm. and people Thank have been you. saying can you get Hugh Jackman on the show can you get Hugh Jackman on the show and apart from Her Majesty the Queen who unless she wants to make a movie alongside Daniel Craig again like she did for the London 2012 <laughs> Olympics you know you're the guy that we've been after oh. so. well thank you for saying that and it's funny you mentioned Real Steel because my son who's 15 he said to me that he goes you know it seems to me that Hollywood makes a lot of sequels but there's two of your movies dad I have no idea why they haven't made a sequel and I said what's that and he said Real Steel is one and said so the other one is flushed away. And he really loved both those movies. And, and I actually, I feel the same. I love them both. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's, we just, I don't know who makes the decisions, but, 
anyway, you have to live with that. Yeah, but yeah. thank you for saying that. I'm I'm really proud of that movie too. And what are you working on next? You? What do we see you in next? A movie I'm really excited for, particularly everyone in this country to see, which is Eddie the Eagle. Oh, right, yes. You remember that story? Yeah, I do, yes. And it, it is actually an amazing story. You're not Be- playing Eddie, though, are you? I'm not. Coach, I'm, yeah, I'm the washed-up coach. <laughs> way, way more me. Um, no, Taron Edgerton, who I have to say I was blown away by and loved working with him. And to come off Kingsman, playing that sort of young, sort of heroic lead in an action movie, to playing Eddie the Eagle, he is phenomenal. I think... He's a star that's going to be – his star's going to shine bright for many, many, many years. But the whole – everyone sort of fell in love with him in Kingsman, but the whole world is going to fall in love with him in a different way here. It's it's a great, great performance. And I'm, the movie itself is so heartwarming and really sort of touching and fun. And I'm really excited about it. And while you're in the country and the, the, the World Cup is, uh, yes. is happening, I know it's the wrong code. I think you're a league man, really, rather than Well, union, I grew but... up playing union, actually. So I love union, and, but I just don't get into it as much until it is something like the World Cup. But any rugby fan must have looked at the Japanese oh. match the other day and thought, that's, that's taking sports somewhere else. That is just, it was just so awesome. You that's know? a movie there, that of is. Of course, you know, every Australian is saying Eddie Jones, Eddie Jones, but, you know, it's, that is a movie. And it's such a great... I, I, that's what I love about rugby. There's still a sense, almost, I know it's a professional sport, but it's still got a little bit of that old-fashioned sense of honour and sense of um, of the amateur and truly what it's about, in a way. I mean that in the best sense. And I, I, I think that match epitomised what, what the sport is about and the whole world now is sort of behind Japan, and I love that. Yeah. Uh, Hugh, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. If I could just change that, I don't think the New Zealanders are really behind Japan. (laughs) (laughs) But great to talk to you, Simon. Thanks, Hugh. Take care. Hugh Jackman, uh, who... What a lovely-sounding bloke. Absolutely. Is he kind of new best friend now, isn't he? He is, definitely. uh, Until you hear Tom Hiddleston uh, next week. Oh, really? Okay. He's also new best friend. I recorded that interview before I realised that England-Australia was going to be such a crucial match. Uh, as you know, Mark, it's coming up this weekend. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's in the Rugby World Cup. Is it fine? Eight o'clock, full coverage. Is that the thing that's months. making the trains full? That may may well be the case. OK, just as long as I understand that. Anyway, Japan comes out, so it's sort of stretched over the next couple of weeks. Yes, uh, it says uh, previews on the 10th and the 11th. It'll open Scotland on the 12th and nationwide on the 16th of October. I presume that that means, in that case, it'll have one of those whopping opening weekends in yeah. which it's two days turn into nine. But I just wanted to mention Real Steel because it was, and he was yeah, really clearly, he wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Because, it's a really good, yeah. fun film. It's, you know, Mighty Battling Robots, but on a big IMAX. I saw it on the IMAX screen. It was massive. And he's a, oh, Hugh isn't like an old-fashioned movie star. He yeah. can do everything. He can sing and he can dance. Yeah. Uh, he can do whatever it is you want him to do. And he's a top bloke as well. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be, so Pan coming out, uh, as Mark said, in the next uh, couple of weeks. Do you want to squeeze something in before the news? Yeah, so let's get in Convenience, which is a sort of super low-budget movie, which which has uh, won some awards. The director won a, a Welsh BAFTA Breakthrough uh, Award. So the story is um, these two sort of hapless friends, Ray Bantucky and Adil Akhtar, who is, I think you'd know from uh, from Four Lions, um, they are they're in need of money because of some stuff that's happened at the beginning to do with uh, do with gangsters, and they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to hold up a, uh, um, a local uh, gas station. Unfortunately, when they get there, it's on a timer, so they can't, so what they have to do is wait. And uh, Vicky McClure is the seen-it-all shop assistant 
assistant who proves more than a match for her would-be captors. And then during the course of the of the comedy, during the course of the enfolding comedy drama, a bunch of people all completely failing to appreciate the gravity of the situation walking. So it's just basically it's a series of sitcom sketches held together by the sort of the overarching narrative of they're stuck in this gas station, they have to wait until the safe opens and our captors attempt to make friends with their captives. Here's a clip. Oh, do you have to do that, yeah? Well, I can't go outside, can I? Well, you could have a bit more consideration for those who don't smoke. Yeah, well, you could have a little bit more consideration for those who don't want to be taken hostage. How long does it take for Stockholm Syndrome to kick in? I wouldn't hold your breath. No, actually, do. You know what? And I thought we had chemistry. Yeah, we did, until you put a gun in my face and tied me to a chair twice. You reckon you're clever? I have my moments. Then why are you doing a night shift in a petrol station? Well, at least it's honest money. <laughs> don't hold your breath on second thoughts do I mean it's it's a super low budget uh, bits of it are funnier than other bits of it but actually generally it's it, it, it's pretty entertaining it, it has a sort of clerksy feel to it or Clarks I always, always worry about how to pronounce the title of that you know the, the yeah, Kevin Smith film Clarks Clerks they don't say, they say Clerks they, we would say Clarks, but then Clark, they say clerks, clerks in the movie. Yeah, exactly. So therefore, it has to be clerks. Although that said, you know, the director of Kickass refers to it as Kickass because he says that you, you can't because he says it's pretty. Anyway, so uh, it is a, a, a series of uh, situations. People like Vern Troyer, Tom Bell, Tony Way, um, uh, Anthony Head all wander into the gas station during the course of the evening, and each one of them sort of has their own slightly absurdist interaction. So occasionally, it plays out like a series of sketches. But the fact is, it does keep the giggles coming fairly regularly. Vicky McClure is uh, indomitably entertaining as. Uh, as always, the, the two main guys have sort of droll, deadpan, double-act comedy. Uh, and and actually, quite often with these things, because the structure is so, you know, the structure is, it, it is so sort of obvious, you think it's all going to fall apart, but actually it, it continued to be uh, pretty entertaining all the way through. I never got bored. I never thought, OK, fine, this the, the, the joke has now overstretched itself. It's, it's kind of uneven. Bits of it are funnier than other bits of it, but I chuckled all the way through, and, uh, and I like the cast, and the fact that it's done on a super low budget gives it a sort of very nice kind of uh, indie vibe. Uh, difficult to find? Do you think it'll get a... No, apparently not. I checked out it is it is opening at a number of cinemas. I did check this out, so it is opening at a number of cinemas. We might actually put up a link which says which cinemas it's on, OK? OK. Called Convenience. All right. Uh, an email from Bianca Whitlocks, who's in Eindhoven. 29-year-old radio technician, writer, fangirl, no letters after my name, but I do have three first names, though we only have Bianca. Uh, so, as a semi-retired radio techie, at a tiny Dutch radio station. I really do enjoy the live stream, which is the reason for uh, the email. Okay. And don't at all think it's a waste of my afternoon, as you always (laughs) suggest. Uh, It's nice to see how you actually make the show, and I'd love to have a big shout-out to the people on the other side of the glass. Hello, other people there. They're all waving, actually. You can only see the tops of their heads, though, because they're all behind screens. They're all very busy. Doing NASA stuff. They're all very busy researching and just checking out Steve Wright's oldies. Uh, Anyway, it's nice to see how you actually make the show. I'd love to have a big shout-out. Right, OK, so we've done that. Also a big part of making this brilliance happen. Thanks, guys. Uh, guy being a generic term. Radio is a joy to make to very listen good. to. And yes, well rescued. Watch. Thank you very much. Getting to watch Mark flapping his hands and arms is an added bonus. The film Thing made me super happy to see the interview with Kerry Mulligan in a different studio. I have to admit that I did spend most of it looking at the tech behind Simon since I already heard the interview. So if you in any way feel inclined to do it again, I would love to see more of your studio, including behind the magic piece of glass to gorp 
at the mixing table. So uh, I'm not sure. What we could do is we could... Well, why don't we do a Snapchat, because that's a really good use of modern So Snapchat the people behind the glass. We'll Snapchat the people behind the glass. We'll name them and we'll show you all the... Name and shame, I thought was what you were going to say. The mixing table, which is uh, what Bianca is going to be really excited about. Hugh Jackman, not interested. No. 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 Tommy Nelson, not, not interested. interested. New mixing table. Ooh, Ooh, I'll have some of have that. Have some of that. Thanks very much. Can I give you a present? This is from Dave Norris. Last week we had a conversation about Waterworld. The well-known projection. Yes, we had a conversation about Waterworld, in which I said Waterworld's a bunch of pants, in which Kevin Costner is a fish, and you said not at all, it's actually rather a good I film. I enjoyed it, and he's not a fish, he's just got gills. Yeah, in the original version to the screenplay, he had more gills than he does in the thing. When the, in the, but by the time the film finally finished up, he was just a bit fishy. He was just a little bit scaly. But in the original version of it, he had more gills mm-hmm. because he had... He had aqua, 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 I didn't see that, so that doesn't count. There you go. There's a Blu-ray of Waterworld for you with a man from Uncle Set. Enjoy Waterworld. It's, it's every bit as good as you remember it being. Excellent. Good. Well, I shall enjoy that and report back. Yes. And then if I give you um, Jeremy, will you watch that? Nope. Life is too short. It's nine minutes past it's three. not too short to watch Waterworld again. Mayo at bbc.co.uk, 85058. The Snapchat is being uh, sorted. Rory Kethlin-Jones is moving into his studio next door. All is well with the world. So uh, this is the bit everyone's waiting yeah, the for Martian. is The Martian. So you've seen The Martian, I've seen The Martian. And uh, so the story is uh, there are, there's a, 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 an exploratory mission on Mars collecting stuff and bits and dust and doing things and doing exploratory stuff. And uh, suddenly, in the middle of it all, there is is a, what do we call it, a scientifically anomalous but narratively necessary storm. That'll do. That's very good. Uh, and uh, the because the storm is coming, it's going to knock the spaceship over. Everyone has to get onto the spaceship and abandon Mars. But due to uh, flying debris and all manner of stuff, Matt Damon's character, Mark Watney, who is uh, the sort of the, the central, who is the Martian of the title. Obviously, he's not a Martian. Just he's, he's... Watney's Red Planet. Oh. I wish I'd thought of that. Did you? Did you? Halfway through the second, I've seen it twice now. So halfway through the second time, I thought, "Oh, I'll do that." Oh, that's so annoying that you thought that. It's only appropriate for listeners of a certain age. They go, "What? What's what in his red planet?" Okay, I'm now going to be cross for the whole of the rest of the show. Put it in for your uh, for your newspaper. What in his red planet? <laughs> Oh. Anyway, so oh, okay, fine. So uh, they 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 think that he is dead. So they uh, they they take off because they have to. They've got no other choice. Jessica Chastain is the is the captain. They've got no other choice other than to take off, believing him to be dead. They take off. Turns out, of course, he's not dead. They start heading back. Meanwhile, he realizes that he is there for the long haul because it being Mars, any rescue mission is like years away. We're talking like hundreds of days or souls as they have in Mars, the solar days. And so he starts. Um, firstly, he attempts to let people know that actually he is still there and he isn't dead. But more importantly, he realizes that he has a very limited number of rations and the time that he is there is going to be longer than the rations that he has. So he starts making a video diary of how he is going to, in his own words, not die. Here's a clip. Right. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist. Mars will come to fear my botany powers. 
So that's the, that's the setup. You're laughing already, okay? So I that's. Think it's the, great. I think it's great. You can hear, you can hear the whimsy. You there. can. So basically, what he has to do is he has to not die for long enough for firstly to establish uh, some form of contact with uh, the, with with mission control with with Earth. Secondly, to what are you doing? I'm putting on my Martian helmet. I see. Okay, so for those listening and wondering why Simon suddenly sounds like he's in a goldfish bowl, you have just put on... This is actually Matt Damon's helmet. No, it's not. It is. No, Signed by not. Matt Damon. It says It's actually signed by Ridley Scott. It's not signed by Matt Damon. It's that's, why, that's why it says Ridley Scott on it. It's officially authenticated as Matt Damon's helmet. Are you actually wearing Matt Damon's helmet? The helmet was designed by Janty Yates. You've just broken it. Janty Yates, who's worked with Ridley Scott on Exodus, Gods of Kings, uh, God's Prometheus, and- Robin Hood, American Gangster, Kingdom of Heaven and Gladiator, and he made this helmet. This is Matt's helmet. I am Matt Damon. When Matt Damon steps out of the shower, that's just what I look like. I just want to tell you that. Okay. <laughs> uh, what well, I think? What I think is that everyone listening on the radio and not actually looking at you with your head in a goldfish bowl, which has been signed by Ridley Scott, is going to wonder why this bit of radio... It's a live stream special. It's a live... OK, fine. And a Snapchat special. OK. Sorry, have I put you off? No, no, that's absolutely fine. I just love the idea of conducting the rest of this review whilst you've got your head in a large plastic casing with Ridley Scott's name written on it. Frank Sidebottom all over again. It is. Oh, I'm the Martian. Oh, yes, I am. I really am. If you keep the front of it off, then it's OK. Then I can actually <laughs> look ridiculous. I know. I'm going to carry on there. Okay, so uh, so basically what he then has to do is he has to stay alive whilst, firstly, making contact with Earth, secondly, waiting for them to develop, to figure out whether or not it's possible to get something, you know, up to Mars to keep him alive long enough for them to send another mission which is coming in some time. And all the time what he has to do is to fight the elements. And the first thing he does is he realises that he has to grow, as he said in that thing, he has to grow three years' worth of supplies. He finds a bag of potatoes, but there is apparently nothing grows on Mars, but he discovers that actually what they have is the the waste from the toilet. And, of course, that, like anything else, is some form of fertiliser. So the first thing he ends up doing, basically, is seeing whether it's possible to grow potatoes in poo. Uh, meanwhile, the only... You've been waiting for that line for a while. But it's true. And meanwhile, the only thing he has to keep him entertained is old reruns of Happy Days and Jessica Chastain's collection of, uh, of archaic dance floor fillers, which he says he hates. So there's a kind of Guardians of the Galaxy thing going on in as much as it's got these sort of retro pop stylings that are completely out of sync with you know the with with the futuristic nature of the tale I really enjoyed it. I, re- I really enjoyed it. So much so, in fact, that I, and I haven't said this for a long time, I could have sat down and watched the whole thing again from the beginning immediately afterwards. And the reason is this. Firstly, it's lovely to have a, a Ridley Scott movie in which, it, which is this well written. The fact of the matter is... Ridley Scott is a great visualist and a great world builder, but he has, if you look at the you know, the screenplay for Prometheus, the screenplay for The Counselor, I mean, The Counselor, you know, which is extraordinary, uh, uh, it should be so much better than it is, and yet it's terrible. You look at Exodus of the Gods and Kings. These are films which are stodgy and ponderous, and, you know, we played a clip from The Counselor, all that stuff about the, the temperature of trust and this, that, and the other. How wonderful to have a script, which, and I think absolutely, Drew Goddard, who's the screenwriter, and Andy Weir's book that it's based on and i haven't read andy weir's book but i know that your youngest said that it's the best book ever ever. well what drew goddard has done is managed to take whatever is brilliant in that book and put it on the screen in a way which is genuinely snappy and funny and it was so terrific because if you look back over ridley scott's career all the great works 
are all built on screenplays. You look at Callie Curry's screenplay for uh, Thelma and Louise. You look at the Hampton franchise, David Webb Peebles stuff for uh, Blade Runner. All of that stuff is built on brilliant screenwriting. It's, there's never any question about whether Ridley, Ridley Scott is a great visual stylist. Of course he is. Actually, even the question about whether Ridley Scott is an actor's director has long since been laid to rest. I know when he was making Blade Runner, people said, oh, well, you know, he's more interested in the technical details than he is. But that hasn't been true for ages. That hasn't been true since Thelma and Louise. He's He can get great stuff out of the movie, but if the script isn't good, the films will end up not being... And sometimes I think that the, the thing with him is that he sees so, so much of what he does is visual that he hasn't actually got the best eye or the best ear for a really good screenplay. So in this case, it's the best written thing he's done in ages and uh, he, that he's worked with in ages from Drew, Drew Goddard's script. And as a result of it, it's the best film because it's funny, because it's actually... It, it leaps off the screen in a sort of joyous, jolly way. It doesn't have all that Prometheus ear-scraping dialogue about the non-existence of God and the role of extraterrestrial engineers or whatever they were called. It doesn't have all that kind of ponderous, don't say what, what, whilst wearing that helmet because it puts me off because you just look like a complete plank. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, it, it doesn't have that. What it has is a character that you care about. And I have to say that Matt Damon does it rather well. He is both charming and funny. I mean, there's a, there's an awful lot of, you know, I'm stuck here and luckily I'm the best botanist. I'm, I'm the best botanist on the whole planet. There's an, all that stuff works really well. And what you're interested in is firstly, how is he going to do it? How is he going to not die? How is he going to stay alive? How is he going to grow the potatoes? How is he going to not run out? of? How is he going to make the journey that he has to make to the other place where, where apparently the, the supplies are going to be sent to? And the pop science in it, the nice thing about the pop science in it is it's all just credible enough to be believable. I mean, I know it's sort of well-researched and everything, but there's obviously when you're turning this stuff into movies, so there's a lot of stuff, but you, know, you have to take out the technical stuff. You have to make you have to make it sound just interesting enough to be to be credible to an audience, but not too techy or so that people start getting, getting fussed about it. And you and I have talked about the fact that apparently, the, you know, the, the storm at the beginning, okay, well, fine, that's a liberty, but, you know, he needed he needed something to get them off the planet and a storm was going to do yeah, it. And as we mentioned in the interview with Ridley last week, he... It, that was Andy Weir. That's the guy who wrote no, no, exactly, the book. And exactly, he said, exactly. And it doesn't matter yeah. because that's fine. That's a different. But, but for the rest of it, you are thinking, oh, how is he? How is he going to make water? Oh, then then there's a sort of science experiment element to it. And I th actually, I think younger viewers going to see it will come away with a renewed interest in science and uh, biology and well, a, you know, and botany and, and botany and, and astronomy. And of course, actually, nobody could have nobody could have built into all this the fact that there's been all these news stories recently about real Mars. I mean, you could just see the PR people for the Martian going. I'm sorry, that is just absolutely brilliant. So people have started discovering stuff. So that all works very well. Meanwhile, the other side of the story, which is populated by extremely good actors, so Chiwetel Ejiofor, Jessica Chastain, who actually does a really good line in She's the Captain... She's the captain. She has to be sorry. You just held up to because you're having your photograph taken, and I you put me off. I, I do apologize. She's the captain, yeah. and she feels terribly guilty and responsible for leaving Matt Damon behind, leaving uh, Mark Watney's re Watney's Red Planet behind. But on the other hand, she's also very very practical, and she has to make decisions about what the rest of the crew do. So her, Michael Pena, Jeff Daniels, uh, Kristen Wiig. I mean, really good actors in what are essentially second string roles. So. I like all of them. I know some of it does. Some of it feels a little bit like, okay, well, we've got to make this work. How are we going to do it? But if actually, what the film is about is defeating the universe with string and glue. I mean, there's a lovely sort of DIY feel to it, which I like. I also like the fact that the that the 
visually to look at. It's you know it's those ochre sands. It's the it's the white interiors. It's the great black of space. And the third act is basically a sort of riff on Alfonso Cuarón's Gravity. So it starts off sort of being silent running, and it starts off being rather Apollo thirteen. You know we've blown something up. How are we going to fix it? Oh well, the guys down on Earth will do it, and they'll tell us how to do it. There's uh, there's a little bit of Duncan Jones Moon in there. The idea that there's somebody on a planet who is uh, you know talking to himself. There's a weird echo of Interstellar, which is hey Matt Damon's on a planet miles away from Jessica Chastain. You know, that's the same. And all that stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's referencing other films. It actually adds to the charm of it. And I think the charm is because it's really well written. It's got a charming central performance. The secondary performances are very, very solid. And the third act, which is, which is, you know, I mean, it's it's a sort of, it, in much the same way as Gravity is, it's a silly third act, but it's really, really excitingly silly. And I just, I enjoyed it enormously. I thought it was really good fun. Congratulations to you for uh, continuing to perform to me whilst I'm actually wearing, wearing a helmet. Matt Damon's helmet. I've got a question for you before the correspondence. Do you think that because it is fun yes. and because Waterloo by ABBA and Hot Stuff yes. by Donna Summer are part of the soundtrack, that it is less tense? No, I mean, I thought it was tense, um, but I also thought it had a, it had a, it had a relentlessly upbeat vibe to it that is definitely added to by the, you know, by that soundtrack. Okay, so I shall now read these with Matt Damon's head on. Uh, Martin Locke uh, says, just come back from first showing of The Martian at the fabulous and recently refurbished Uckfield Picture House. Can I just say that you are doing cosplay. You, you, this you, is cosplay. This is cosplay. I am cosplay. You are on cosplaying the on toast. How about that? Uh, it's a thoroughly wonderful feel-good movie, okay. an old-fashioned rollicking sci-fi adventure of the sort that every man Simon will love, but Mark will be sniffy about. I wasn't, but, but completely wrong. Was I sniffy in the slightest? There were plenty. No, you weren't. There were plenty of laughs, a few tears, terrific soundtrack, the Starman sequence, marvelously distilling all three in two minutes of pure humanist joy. Sure, it played fast and loose with science. The density of the Martian atmosphere seemed to vary. Yeah, yeah, super yeah, yeah. Plot, for example. Yeah. But as, I was... as, as did the length of time that it took for a signal to get from Mars to yeah. Earth. But I was willing to suspend disbelief to go along with a stirring na- uh, narrative. Thank you, Martin. Uh, Nicola Nuttall in Barrowford in Lancashire. Afternoon, gents. Just wanted to let you know how much our family enjoyed The Martian. Fantastic acting from Mr Damon. Good use of humour in a story that could have felt quite bleak and harrowing. It did the impossible and made physics seem sexy and the women women had proper jobs to do rather than just look pretty or act as a love interest for a male character. I'm nominating the gaffer tape for best supporting role uh, in a drama. There is a lot of... There's a lot of sellotape and string. There is a lot of gaffer gaffer tape. It's like, oh dear, you know, all the atmosphere in the place is going to go out into Mars. How are we going to do it? I know. Let's get the gaffer tape and some cellophane. Thanks for keeping me entertained on my long training runs for the Chicago Marathon, which is uh, on October the 11th. Thank you, Nicola. Uh, Lorna Jeanette Harrison, I know you'll be inundated with reviews of The Martian. I just wanted to say, wow. Wow. This is the funniest, most uplifting film I've seen, which also includes self-surgery, which, <laughs> which is true. That's quite a, that's yes. quite a grim that, bit. Incidentally, that is clearly... Um, I mean, I know it's based on a you know a number, but but there, there there are moments in it in which it does get very close to Silent Running, which is a film I love very much. Yeah, yeah. We know. And the idea of a botanist performing self surgery whilst you know out in the outer reaches of space is very very Silent. I Run. deliberately didn't listen to any interviews or reviews before I saw The Martian, including Simon's interview with Ridley Scott uh, last Friday. But Matt Damon is absolutely brilliant as space botanist Mark Watney, a person the exact opposite of his role uh, as Doctor Man in Interstellar. Yeah, exactly, so yeah. is the whole cast with some fully fleshed out minor characters, e.g. Donald Glover as astrodynamicist, Rich Pennell, <laughs> whoever knew there was such a thing. 
I don't even think I've seen a film with such a large cast in a story essentially about a planet with a population of one. Even Sean Bean, as NASA's most unlikely flight director, couldn't spoil it for me. I thought Sean Bean was really good. He was. Jonathan Rees, Economics and Cycling Proficiency Badge, badge 1982. Cycling Proficiency. Gentlemen, I'm a dedicated science fiction fan, so when I heard Ridley Scott had made a new science fiction film packed with science, I was keen to see it. My wife, on the other hand, hates science fiction, so I was surprised when she and two work colleagues decided to accompany me to our local world of city to see it last night. Well, she and they laughed uproariously at the funny parts, gripped the seats at the tense parts. Yes. I won't read out the next bit. They liked okay. it so much, one of them said she was going straight back to see it the following day. So, sorry, isn't, and I haven't heard, read that email. Isn't that exactly what I said? Mm-hmm. I have actually now seen it twice. Okay. There you go. And it just gets funnier. It does. So I am perplexed. How has Ridley Scott managed to make a science fiction <laughs> film about a man potentially starving to death, packed with mostly hard science, into an entertaining feel-good film that even the non-science fiction fans love? The man is a genius. Yeah. Uh, this from Tom in Somerset. The Martian is my disappointing film of the year. Oh. Let's start with the good stuff. Acting. It's quite a good list. Acting, photography, visuals, production design were great. So was the plot. In fact, so was the story. And Ridley Scott has definitely improved from Prometheus... But it's let down... What's what's the but now? It's let down by a number of factors. Go on. First of all, there's too much humour. It's that kind of humour you find... So so hang on. So the problem with the film is it's too funny. It's that kind of humour you find in an average Marvel movie. All the scenes which are meant to be serious or show tension just don't mix with the amount of humour and are hence ruined. I just sat there... I don't agree with that. And there's a lot I can't read out. Because why? Because it's... Well, I just give stuff away. Okay. Uh, I sat there for five minutes staring at the credit, a film by Ridley, by Ridley Scott. I was shocked. I felt even a small tear well up in complete despair and depression. This film could have been so good. I don't want to hate it, but I really can't find the words. Okay, well, I, you know, that just it just goes to show that there is, you know, point counterpoint. There is always for every for every uh, action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, and that particular one is wrong. Wrong. <laughs> Uh, Liam, 17, from Glasgow. Uh, I found the Martian oddly relaxing. It was wonderful to just sit back and watch him potter around Mars growing potatoes and going on long walks in the sand. Not very tense, though, was it? <laughs> well, However, it, it, it I thought, okay, hang on, can I ask you a question? Did you think that the final act was tense? I did think it was tense. I, I thank you. I don't... Th- I think... Which is why I asked the question about ABBA. Yes. Is because I think when you have a relentlessly upbeat... 70s disco soundtrack it changes the mood in the cinema so that you are upbeat about a very tense situation about a guy who's desperately trying to get back to earth and uh, and could die so i think you know okay i think i think sorry read one more email and then i'll say i'll I'll say what i thought okay hmm but which one james i can can leap in if you don't james o'driscoll in worcester I read the book by Andy Weir not one month ago, and as a mathematician by trade, I loved the huge amount of scientific detail and problem-solving that was present. Problem-solving. Problem-solving. No, that's it, problem-solving. Yes, problem-solving. Yeah. Yes, current, current. Science the thing out of it. That's the Science the thing out of it. I was eager to see... That's what's going to happen when they put it on television. You know that, don't you? He's he's going to go, ooh... I was eager to see if the film would be brave enough to follow a similar niche, nerdy path as the book. Short answer, no. Long answer, no. But it didn't matter. My initial thought on exiting the screening was, that wasn't as good as the book, but in the days since I've, de- in the days since, I've decided that this viewpoint was unnecessarily negative. No, it isn't as good as the book. Very few adaptations are. But the decisions the filmmakers made were almost invariably the right ones. 
and as a result, the film retained the tone, humour and soundtrack of the novel, and this all resulted in a monstrously good time. The supporting cast were, in my opinion, slightly overutilised. I would have been perfectly happy to watch Matt Damon on his own for hours. Which but, is interesting, because a lot of people have said that they thought the supporting cast were underutilised, and actually what they wanted was more of that stuff. No, I... I, I disagree, but... I think James is about right. The whole thing is about a guy who's on his own on Mars, mm. so you want to have as much of that as possible. But with actors as strong as Jessica Chastain and Chiwetelegi for this is to be expected. I was slightly disappointed that some of the funnier lines from the book didn't make the cut, but more than happy at how the film circumvented its 12A certificate in order to more closely match the feel of the novel. Okay. It was light-hearted fun done properly. Okay. What's interesting about that is someone's read the book... Uh, Yes, it's lost some, but I think his observation that the filmmakers made the right, right decision. Yeah. And I think that's down to Drew, to, to Drew Goddard's screenplay. Originally, Drew Goddard developed it for himself to direct because, you know, he's the Cabin in the Woods guy. So um, I think the most important thing about it is this. Uh, the, the thing that has really, for me, been a problem with Ridley Scott's recent output is the lack of humour. I mean, I, it was funny because you asked him this question about have you ever made a comedy? I mean, he made a good year. <laughs> it was a listener's question, have you ever made an out-and-out -out comedy? Yeah, and he, he said Thelma and Louise. That's not, which is not an out-and-out -out comedy. No, I mean, Thelma and Louise has got funny things in it, but I, you know, I, I, to have described it as an out-and-out -out comedy is really strange. And, and actually I, wrong. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Actually, completely wrong. And I would agree that I think that the, I think that there's quite a lot of the time Ridley Scott isn't entirely sure of the register of. I think he, sometimes I think he doesn't doesn't he's not sure what's a brilliant screenplay and what's a terrible screenplay. But then again, loads of filmmakers are in exactly that same position. What what works here is that the screenplay is really good and the film has a sense of humour, which is what was lacking from Prometheus, which is what was lacking from Exodus: Gods and Kings, which was what was lacking from the counsellor for heaven's sake and he I just, thinks that's one of his finest films I know but he's completely wrong I mean I I, I, I watch the counsellor thinking you know A list cast B movie dialogue C minus results with some absolute you for unclassified moments of I can't believe you actually left that in the film um in the case of this, it has overcome that problem of ponderousness. I watched Prometheus again the other week. As I've said, I've said this, I sort of defended Prometheus when it first came out because, you know, because I like the idea of it. And yet the, the dialogue is terrible. The, you know, people having these discussions about the existence or non-existence of God and intergalactic engine in a way that nobody does. Actually, in the case of this, it, it, the sense of humour, the levity, the, the brio, the verve is what makes it, for my money, the best Ridley Scott film in a very long time. Uh, this from uh, Paul, who says... It could be Paywell, but it... Paywell. P-A-W-E-L. Pavel. OK, we'll do... Pa Pavel Pavlikovsky, I think. We'll do that then. Uh, having, I think, you know. Having not read the book and not being aware of any of the story, I found this compelling, thoroughly engaging, tender drama about a man's survival mm -hmm. instinct. It was interesting to hear Sir Ridley talk about the lack of a villain, as you really did expect it of Jeff Daniels' character, but it didn't need a physical villain. The villain and hero was the almighty power of nature. Yes. On the one hand, dooming Matt Damon's character to almost certain death, yet giving him the ability to survive where survival was against all odds. It felt very real, yet gripping from start to finish. A very, very good space film indeed. Good. Craig McClay, uh, I think that is, in Loughton in Warrington. With The Martian, Ridley Scott has made his best film in years with his usual stunning visuals combining with an engrossing story and, more importantly, 
It's a lot of fun. The film's irreverent humour and 70s disco soundtrack sets it distinctively apart from other recent space films. The other greatly enjoyable aspect of the film is the ingenious problem-solving that Matt Damon giving a fine performance has to do in order to survive. It has flaws, being too long, Sean Bean is completely miscast as a NASA flight director and the world coming together to watch The Martian events is a bit twee. Probably right. But like Interstellar and Apollo 13... Yeah, it actually doesn't quite make sense, but, you know... Like Interstellar and Apollo 13, it ends up as a reminder to the audience of space exploration and dares us to dream about about it again. Uh, And Leighton Brown, never mind water on Mars, what's going on with Mark's water? Watching Watching the live stream for the first time, Evs, as is customary, I should be working, and I noticed that Mark moved his water glass to his right no fewer than four times during the Martian review. Sorry. He is the only one there that could possibly be moving it back to the left of his pile of papers. Why not just leave it where it is? Was it a pre-flap prep just in case of industrial accident? I think what's happening is it's a, it's a nervous thing. You know, adjust headphones, okay, move, move, fiddle well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tick, you know. But the thing was I, was, I was enjoying myself talking about The Martian because I really liked it. Would you like to wear Matt Damon's helmet during the new? No. no. It still smells... I don't want to. It smells of... Matt Damon. Mm -hmm. No, I don't want to. I really enjoyed the film, but no, I don't want to do that. Thank you. A little bit of cosplay? No? A little bit of snap for your kids? Look, Dad's an astronaut. Shall we go to the news now, then? What are you going to do in the next half hour? Uh, Macbeth and The Walk, definitely. If you had to dress up as any... Don't! Okay. It's 3.32. We have 20 minutes of movie conversation, but TV movie of the week, first of all. Yes. Uh, it looks a pretty impressive list, actually. Quite a difficult choice, I think. Lee Weber says, Terrific list this week, Apocalypse Now and Taxi Driver would be in my top ten. While The Wind That Shakes the Barley is also excellent, I That's tend to agree film. that Mark will go with Casino Royale, uh, perhaps as preparatory viewing for the forthcoming live event. I really should watch Road to Perdition, as it's one of those films I've never got round to. Ian Miles says, having seen the documentary about the traumatic making of Apocalypse Now, it's difficult not to opt for this great film. However, Road to Perdition is my choice. The soundtrack, cast and director would indicate it's a traditional Hollywood blockbuster. I think Mark will go for uh, what Richard did. Nicholas Daniel, I think he's going to pick Casino Royale to remind us where Daniel Craig began his rise to Bond greatness, though personally I would go for The Perks of Being a Wallflower, the film that had me in pieces by the end. Benito Dancy, Mark's going to pick The Wind That Shakes the Barley to satisfy his understandable man crushes on Killian Murphy and Ken Loach, but he'll not. Be able, <laughs> but he won't be able to work out when it's on. Uh, anyway, they're just some of the thoughts that we got in this week. What is TV Movie of the Week? I'm going to go for what Richard did, which is on 12.35 Tuesday. This says 25 to 1 on Tuesday morning. They've now put that in brackets because I'm so terrible at understanding how 24-hour clocks work. 25 to 1 on Tuesday morning. Uh, this is directed by Lenny Abramson, and uh, who I think is a terrific uh, filmmaker. He made um, Adam and Paul ages and ages ago. Uh, he made Frank, uh, Room, his recent film is getting terrifically good reviews. But what Richard did is a sort of engrossing story about a sort of young golden boy who then is involved in uh, in, in a crime. I want to say as little as possible, and it's. I thought it was really engrossing. It's. It's. I think Abramson is a really genuinely terrific director, and it was funny because I hadn't thought about what Richard did for a while because it kind of came and went here, and I remember reviewing it very positively, and then I haven't seen it since then. So it's on. I'm not going to stay up and watch it on Tuesday morning. It's a film. I'm going to. I'm going to record it, but it is a really terrific piece of work, and he is a great director, and I'm really looking forward to seeing his new film. Although I should have mentioned when we talk about The Martian, I read out a review from Lorna Jeanette Harrison. Yes, who who's the one who just wanted to say wow. Anyway, she signed off, which I missed out, but she signed off by saying, well done you, 
F-O, to all Hey, very good, very good. Very good, sir. I thought that was worthy of a mention. Uh, 85058, mayo at bbc.co.uk. Should we do some Shakespeare? Yeah, so let's do Macbeth. So, um, adaptation of Macbeth, directed by, just, directed by Justin Kurtzell, with um, Michael Fassbender uh, in the title role. Basically, if Polanski's Macbeth was a horror movie, a sort of early 70s paranoia a horror movie, this is very much a, a war movie. The way in which it's... Uh, the way in which it stakes out its own territory is that it is very much a story about a warrior. We begin and end in battle. An awful lot of it takes place outdoors with these kind of misty moors and very, very scenic settings. There are battle scenes in it that appear to be sort of post-Braveheart, actually almost slightly inflected by 300 even, the kind of the, almost the comic strip slow-mo of 300. And what it does is it essentially portrays Macbeth as somebody who is destroyed by, well, post-traumatic stress, also by family bereavement, which eat away at his soul. So it's what it seems to do is to locate the beginning of the rot much more in his experience of battle and his experience of bereavement than is standardly accepted, which is that Lady Macbeth is the great big villainous creation. Lady Macbeth, played by Marianne Cotillard. Here is, uh, here is a clip uh, with uh, Michael Fassbender and Marianne Cotillard. My dearest love... Duncan comes here tonight. And when goes hence? Tomorrow, as he purposes. Oh, never shall send that morrow see. Glance thou art, and Cordor, and shalt be what thou art promised. Yet I do fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great. Art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. To beguile the time, look like the time, bear welcome in your eye, your hand, your tongue. Look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. He that's coming must be provided for, and you shall put this night's great business into my dispatch, which shall to all our nights and days to come give solely sovereign sway and masterdom. The strange thing about the film is that um, it does have a remarkable performance by Marion Cotillard, but because of the way that the narrative works, it does much more than traditionally sideline that character and actually makes her, if anything, a, a, a damaged partner in crime rather than the great proto-femme fatale, which is... I mean, I've, you know, I've seen productions... I'm, I'm, I am, I'm not... I don't know Shakespeare inside out. You know, I've seen productions and films and the rest of it, but it's the one in which, oddly enough, because of the way that the narrative works, it has sidelined Lady Macbeth more than any other. What actually it seems to do is to focus in on the fact that that Macbeth himself is battle-scarred, battle-hardened, battle-traumatised. And uh, the poetry in the film is much more visual than it is verbal. There is a sense of stripping things away and uh, mounting it in these, you know, sort of misty, scenic, huge, great big epic confrontations. I think the thing about the, uh, you know, fiery woods, public burnings, this is this is the kind of palette that we're talking about. It's interesting that when you look at the BBFC certificate, it says 15 for strong bloody violence or for bloody violence, you know, well, of which there is indeed much. It is spittle flecked and covered in mud and covered in war paint. And I think on that level, it works. My own feeling is that it's a strange, it's a strange decision to to take the take the the central broiling role away from them. Maybe she's still there. She still does what she does. She still functions in the narrative as before. But in a, she seems much more in this production to be functioning in isolation. 
The performances are very good. It's uh, funnily enough, it actually lays the it, it lays the plans rather well for the forthcoming Assassin's Creed adaptation, which they're doing now, which of course is the computer game, which everybody is imagining maybe the, the kind of the great computer game adaptation. That and of course Duncan Jones has got uh, Warcraft coming. So you know, solid and much to like, although f- a fundamentally a strange decision, I think, to sort of to, 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 to take the emphasis away from Lady Macbeth and put it much more onto Macbeth. But every adaptation must find its own feet. And I think that that is what's happened here. I would be uh, particularly interested to get some reaction about the Scottish accents, because to my English ears, it was pretty good. Uh, Paddy Considine, you know, when you go and see him uh, in Miss You Already, he's back to the Paddy Considine that you know. But mm. when you see him in this, I just thought the accents were terrific all the way through. But as we discovered, you know, you have to wait until uh, the experts actually get to hear it. Yeah. So, but it, and it is very visually arresting, isn't it? I, I mean, was, it's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Very I mean, stabby. brutal. Yes, that's very beautiful, but very stabby. Yeah, put that on the poster. Very good. Uh, if you want, but I like the style. I like the stylized way that they, yeah. that they con- where the witches. In fact, there's a correspondent about to make this point about the witches. It seems to be perfectly natural. That they're just there on the side of battle. Why wouldn't they be? Uh, David, who's in Stratford-upon-Avon, so he knows about this kind of thing, having just returned from a free preview of Justin Curzel's visceral creation of Macbeth. Visceral, yeah. My partner and I are still recovering from one of the most unrelentingly gripping film viewings we've experienced. This is very much Curzel's pared-down interpretation of Macbeth, cutting to the very heart of the story. He creates a Scotland of rain and snow, mud (laughs) and mud and brutality of a beautiful but cruel landscape. It is a world where the presence of soothsaying witches and ghostly apparitions seem almost natural, I guess. Dare I say it, but good as Fassbender is as Macbeth, and he seemed to grow into the part, Marion Cotillard's Lady Macbeth, oh, Lady Macbeth, Marion Cotillard, and Sean Harris as Macduff steal the show. To justify putting Shakespeare on the screen, one must do something special with it. And Curzel has achieved that with this very bleak and stylish imagining. I love Branagh's film version of Henry V and Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing, but this is the best cinematic production of Shakespeare that I have watched. Uh, Richard, uh, on this, says, uh, The landscapes filled with ghostly blood-smeared armies and vaporous witches positively seethe with elemental... People are really writing these reviews. Here is a sentence for an essay. Go on. Right from the beginning. The landscapes filled with ghostly, blood-smeared armies and vaporous witches positively seethe with elemental savagery and the cavernous, light-streaked interiors of Ely Cathedral are a joy to behold. Very good. A joy to behold. All this would be for naught if not populated by a truly brilliant cast from top to bottom. Fassbender and Cotillard deliver a pair of magnetic performances as they descend into madness, ably supported by the always brilliant Paddy Considine, hello Paddy, the stalwart Jack Trainer, and the frighteningly intense Sean Harris as Macduff. Michael Shannon and him should have a staring match one day, <laughs> just to see who is officially the scariest of them all. Scariest, yeah. Uh, Shakespeare's language rasps, whispers and shouts its way out uh, through these talented mouths and achieves the rhythm of a spell that tri- that drives the film to its inevitable and crimson in more ways than one climax. I can see how this fever dream approach may put some people off. It absolutely had me enthralled from start to finish. There you go. And Very by good. the way, yes. it's Richard, my friend Mike Leslie was one of the writers responsible for adapting the play to the screen. Well. Please give him a warm wass-up and congratulations if you get a chance. So... Very good. That, your job is to adapt Shakespeare. Yeah, go to. 
See what you can do. Uh, anyway, so it's uh, 11 minutes to four. Is there space and time for anything else? There is. So let's do uh, The Walk, which is the new film by Robert Zemeckis. In 2008, James Marsh's documentary, Man on Wire, pretty much told the story of Philip Petit. I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary documentary about the Frenchman who, in 1974... Um, executed an illegal high-wire act between the newly built roofs of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Centre. And it's an extraordinary documentary. It you know, includes dramatisations and interviews and uh, reconstructions and all that stuff. And it's a really brilliant piece of work. I think it gets right under the skin of the of the man himself, or Philip Petit, who I have to say I've met... Um, I met him and I, uh, and I did the, I, I kissed his feet because I thought, when am I ever going to get the you know the feet that did that extraordinary you, feat? You kissed his feet. I did, yeah, I did. I was just because. And anyway, so if you after what you've seen, you, well, after you, you're, you're wearing like, shoes. Yes, I didn't. I get him to take his shoes off, but it's just, those are the feet that walked on that rope. Anyway, yes. The one thing that's missing from. Uh, from that documentary is moving footage of the walk, which is captured actually in just still photography and in the incredibly vivid memories of those who saw it. Robert Zemeckis has now sort of seen fit to go back and do the whole thing as a dramatisation, featuring as its sort of central pièce de résistance an extraordinary sequence in which he basically recreates the walk and puts you up there on the wire. Before that, we get the backstory of how the thing came together with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing Philippe Petit with a slightly wobbly French accent. Here's, here's a clip. I make my way to the top, nobody stops me. And I find myself standing on an island floating in midair on the edge of the void. Of course, I automatically look across to the opposite tower, but then I have to dare to look down. Now, I think I know the void. I'm a wire walker, the void is my domain, yes? Well, not this void. But still I gather the courage to whisper. I whisper so the demons won't hear me. It's impossible. But I'll do it. And his father smelt of elderberries. I <laughs> know it is. It is slightly cold accent. And in fact, actually, the way the narration is done is it's got a kind of carnivalesque quality to it. At the beginning, he goes, hello, I am Philippe Petit. I'm going to tell you how I did all this stuff. But he does it in that sort of, in the Joseph Gordon-Levitt accent. So in the retelling of the story and the recreation of the, you know, how we got here and how we got to the thing, there it, it is... I have to say, in certain places, pretty creaky. Uh, ben Kingsley's doing yet another one of his experimenting with a with with with, with a, a no fixed location accent as the Czech French uh, Papa Rudy, who is the, the mentor. And also, they've taken some of the rougher edges off the story, specifically about his relationship with Annie Alex, which is one of the most interesting things about the documentary. Because one of the things that the documentary does is it doesn't shy away from understanding what fame brings with it and how actually in order to be the kind of person who would do this you have to be single-minded sometimes in a way which is utterly selfish and utterly exclusive so there are a lot of things in which the documentary is absolutely untouchable i still think the documentary remains a, a, an, a, an untouchable work which tells this story perfectly however there is the central sequence in which what Robert Zemeckis does is to say, OK, well, fine, well, this is what you can't have seen. We're going to put you up there on the wire. And I have to say, it it was visceral and then some. So I saw it in laser-projected IMAX 3D. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Scary. Wow. And I honestly, and I, I feel foolish saying this, 
there was a moment watching it that I I had to hide. I literally, I had to hide my eyes because, I mean, I'm scared of heights anyway, as I think sort of, but I think even if you weren't scared of heights, what, what Zemeckis has managed to do, because he is great at orchestrating this. I mean, he is somebody who understands how to make CG and live action come together fairly seamlessly. I mean, he's really been doing that since the days of Forrest Gump, since the days of that feather floating through mm. the opening sequence of Forrest Gump. And it's, you know, he's, he's not, it's not to do with spectacular um, C- CG that creates stuff you couldn't see elsewhere. It's to do with using CG to create something that looks real, that looks natural. And that whole sequence, which is really, I mean, you've seen it on the poster and it's, it's really the thing. It does something that the documentary couldn't possibly do because that footage doesn't exist, but it also does something that very little other cinema could do, which is that it puts you up there on that wire. And I get, I, honestly, I was clinging onto the edge of the cinema seat. My, I, was, I was both exhilarated and terrified at the same time. I kept thinking, I want this to be over. Because the thing is, I know how it, you know, I know, you know, Philip Petit is... is you know, around his feet. I kissed his feet. He's, you know, he's been, everyone's seen the document. We all know this story, but you also know that because of the way that the thing panned out, there are certain still photographs of things that have to happen before he get, because he was on the wire for a long time. He didn't just walk. What he did was he walked one way and then he came back the other way and then he, and then the police turned up. So he walked off again and then he came back and then he sits, sits down and then he lies down and then he stands up. And there was a, there's a wonderful moment in the documentary when the policeman says, the man dancing on the wire. He wasn't walking on the wire. He was dancing on the wire. And that's, that's what it's like. And, and actually, and people often are sort of, they, they, they denigrate uh, the visceral cinema, the cinema of experience. Um, but there is, I, honestly, that sequence, that central sequence of the walk, it, it, it was genuinely breathtaking. I mean, genuinely breathtaking to the point that I was really properly thinking, like, hiding my, my behind myself. So if you see it, go see it on the biggest screen possible and, and also, with the best projection possible. Well, can I ask also about yes, three, 3D? Because we, uh, when 3D works, mm-hmm. it's often in that kind of pantom... It's sort of like a fairground ride. So that's mm-hmm. where, it, where it always was. Yeah. And I've seen the trailer in 3D. Have you? Oh, right, fine. And, and, I, find and I thought that was... Quite extraordinary. Okay, but, but the I, trailer's got some of the walk in it, doesn't yeah, it? Just yeah, as yeah. he as he, he steps, steps out, out, so you yeah. see it from above. Yeah, and I think the I thought the three D added to the experience. Yeah, well, what do you think? Okay, here's what I think. What do you think? My suspension, my disbelief was thoroughly suspended, and I didn't watch any of it thinking, "Oh, this three D isn't working for me." I watched it with every atom of my being thinking, ah, ah, "You know." It's really high. and oh, So it worked no, then? No, yes, it worked. It, it absolutely worked and it did the thing that, I mean, I've always said the problem for me with 3D is it doesn't, it, it, usually it doesn't suck me into it. What it does is it alienates me from it. But I saw it in IMAX 3D, as I said, with, you know, ace pin shot projection, 12 foot Lamberts at the back of the room. Good old foot Lamberts. For good old foot Lamberts. And uh, I was, I, I, I was literally clutching the edge of right. the seats. I'm not, you know, I'm not kidding. How is it? You're not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. How is it possible that with three minutes to go, two and a half minutes to go before drive, yeah. you haven't even mentioned the Robert, a Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway? I know. Movie. Sorry. Okay. So the intern, which is Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway movie, there's been a. We probably won't have time to play a clip for this, but I'll just do it. Quickly. So there's been quite a lot of press about this because Robert De Niro walked out of an interview with uh, the Radio Times, and usually when people walk out of interviews it's because they know that the film that they're promoting is not really up to snuff Mm. Mm. 
So anyway, the story is Robert De Niro is a 70-year-old who gets a job working as a late-life intern at an e-commerce company that's run by Anne Hathaway. She is very, very harassed. She's trying to work out her life-work balance. She cycles around the office in a kooky way because she doesn't like to waste any time. And he ends up being her assistant. And at first, she's very snappy, you know, like two seconds here, three seconds there. So basically, but then she sort of comes to, to, to like him and understand him. So basically, it is the devil wears Prada the, the older years, the nicer years, because Anne Hathaway is now, you know, graduated to being the boss. And the story then is that he has all this kind of uh, later life wisdom. He's full of um, he's full of good old fashioned values and you know, always take a handkerchief. She discovers that actually, whereas she is beset by sexism and, uh, you know, gender prejudice, um, both from friends and colleagues alike, he, oddly enough, turns out to be uh, an unexpected uh, feminist flag waver. And I, I have to say, I went into it expecting, you know, expecting to be grated by it, particularly because of the whole sort of walkout thing. But actually, I thought it was perfectly fun. I've read some very stinky reviews of it. I've read some people have, you know, really taken against it. I don't understand that at all. There is nothing to take against. I mean, it's baggy and it's sentimental, but it's hearts in the right place. Um, the script uh, by Nancy Myers, who uh, also directed the film, uh, hits all the right uh, equal ops notes and ticks all the right boxes. There are some moments in it that are quite cute and quite funny. It's certainly nothing that's going to stand the test of time and and last forever. It's, it's not a it's not a a thing that Robert De Niro is going to chalk up as one of his greatest screen roles, but you know what? It's perfectly fine. It's too long. It's too baggy. It's sort of a little bit sickly sweet and sentimental, but it does also do the right things. It does have conversations about why is it that I can't be a career woman and why is it that I should have to take responsibility for my family suffering just because I'm successful and why is it that my husband can't, you know, be as supportive as perhaps he needs to be and then why is it that just because... The only naff thing about it is that Rennie Russo appears to have been brought in entirely for sort of carry-on type relief as the office masseuse and I can only imagine that her role was cut down savagely in the editing. And uh, So movie of the week? Well, The Martian. The details and further fun can be had on the podcast. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Standing by for Drive coming next. Hey, Mark, well done. Hey, you Simon, were well really, done. really fabulous. You were great, despite the fact that you spent half the thing with a goldfish bowl on your head just because Matt Damon and more. What the funniest thing was when you it said... It smells you said, Matt. It says Matt Damon on it. And you said that whilst wearing a helmet that says Ridley Scott. Well, it looks nothing like Matt upside Damon. Upside down and inside out. It just you boy, like, you're turning me. It says Matt Damon. Upside down. Now we're back in the 70s disco. That was probably Diana Ross's finest song. Do you think? I think so. There's a, do there's a documentary that they keep playing on BBC Four, the fabulous BBC Four, um, which is uh, about... Uh, what? what? What's it about? Well, you know, it's about uh, chic and, uh, and you know, and that, that sort of fantastic funky guitar sound and then about working with Diana. It doesn't matter, actually. I've realised that the, the, it, it's, it's going to be too long to get to the point yes. of that story. Anyway, it's all to do with the fact that the polarities on his guitar were reversed. Moving on. Very, very uh, great anecdote, that one. Thank uh, you. Let's keep hold of everyone that. Who's seen the, everyone who's seen the documentary knows what I mean. Is it time for DVD of the week? Is it time for DVD of the week? I hope so. I think it is. It's everyone's favourite antiquated collection, DVD of the week. Bask in the warming glow of a stubborn refusal to move with the times. With this enchanting selection of good old-fashioned physical releases, you can't hold a digital stream in your arms, so throw out your tablet and adjust your tracking for the best possible viewing experience. Last week, Mark chose the excellent Catch Me Daddy to add to our shelf. What will he go for this time? Well, Mark, it's over to you. 
can't believe you're going to do this every week. I, I quite enjoy it. There's a little part of me that likes a bit of cheese in the afternoon. There's a little part of me that dies every time I start hearing this music. So basically, um, DVD of the week, Mad Max Fury Road. And the reason for it is, is very simply, it's to do with going back and revisiting the film once again as you remember when it first came out I mean this pr- it proved very very divisive I liked it I, I, liked, thought, it. I, th- I liked it I, I loved it at the time and I thought there were some things about it that I thought were problematic that I still retain are problematic which you know to do with the you know the depiction of the wives I still think that's an issue and I've seen it twice however it is true that uh, it has it's I mean it didn't need to grow I mean I liked it in the first place although I had reservations about it but um, I want to go back and watch it again now, slightly away from the big pummeling cinema screen. And p- partly because Charlie's Theron is absolutely terrific, partly because I think Tom, I'm, I'd be interesting to see Tom Hardy again after having just watched him doing two performances in the, in the, in the Craze movie. Because the fact is, the weird thing about Max Rokotansky in uh, Mad Max Fury Red is that he barely says anything at all. So it's like he's doing a sort of a, you know, a 0.5 performance, because actually the whole film is completely stolen by Charlie's Theron and. I was thinking about this more and more. What I do like about it is I like the action aesthetic of being a film in which the narrative is effectively told through movement and through action rather than being one of the things that I that I complain about a lot is people sitting around explaining the plot to each other if you remember when we did the the Da Vinci Code review all those years ago so my main problem with it was it consisted of people running into darkened rooms pointing at things and then explaining the plot to each other there is really very very little of that in Mad Max because what Miller's done is to say okay this is a film which in which the narrative which the story all the things are told physically they are told through action they are told through movement they are told through graphic representation rather than somebody saying excuse me can you just explain to me why it is that you know that, that Immortan Joe is doing that and why is it that Imperator Furiosa is doing that so uh, I think it is an achievement and I think that it's possible that uh, that my reservations about it were um, overstated I know, I know so many people who have absolutely loved it and second time round, I really, really enjoyed it. I still, I still have underlying reservations mm-hmm. about the depiction of the wives, but I think it is a really solidly decent film. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. You liked it too, right? I loved it. And if you've got a spare copy of the DVD of the week, I'd love to have one. I'll get you one, but you've got to watch Waterworld first. Oh, OK. <clears throat> Nathaniel Byrne says, My newly recruited to the church better half Sophie and I enjoy competing over University Challenge. So far I'm winning. I think it's fair to say the programme is held as a bastion of fact and knowledge, so I wanted your help in clearing up what I think are two errors spotted over the last two weeks. First, oh, what? Dr Kermode was said to have graduated from the University of Southampton. Yeah, no, that was wrong. That was completely wrong. We did, their, we did discuss this. Their team appeared two weeks ago. Now, I know that the good lady professor her indoors. is a lecturer at said university, but does Mark also have links? Was the infallible Paxman wrong to state this? Also, how was the honorary Dr Mayo not listed as notable alumni of the University of Warwick on this week's programme. Your gentlemen, uh, you gentlemen need to head down to the studio responsible and have these errors him out. rectified with apologies issued forthwith and perhaps a was up uh, to fellow Wittertainees, Dr Badger, a real person apparently, Mr Henderson and Mr Akaya and of course to my dearest Sophie who has finally started listening to the podcast. Nathaniel Byrne, 34 and a half. Well, no, you've you've got nothing to do with the university. I have got something. I'm a visiting fellow at the University oh, of Southampton. Oh, what does that mean? It means I'm a fellow who turns up every now and then and says, "Hello, I'm just visiting." No, I go like and I do. I, I I do academic stalker. 
Pardon me? Academic stalker, is that what that means? No, it means I turn up and I do... Uh, I, there's, a, there's a thing, I do, I do a, a lecture A juggling about, routine. I do a juggling yeah. routine, that's exactly right. No, I do a lecture about about uh, The Exorcist and where it stands in... Surprise, oh, surprise, surprise. That, that must be great. And then we did a seminar recently about the changing nature of cinema. It's just, you know, I'm a visiting fellow. Can anyone be a... Can I be a visiting fellow? Can no, I? because you're not a real doctor. You're a made-up doctor who got given a doctorate by the University of Please Yourself. I could still turn up and be a visiting fellow then. Yeah, fine. Well, you just try. You just try flouncing in in your in your gown, going, "Oh, I'm a doctor. I've got a whatever it is." I'm did you know? That. Did you know that if you went, if you if you went, I don't know if this is still true. If you went to Cambridge or Oxford or Oxbridge, as I believe it's called, mm-hmm. um, you automatically got an. People will write in and correct me on this. If you get a degree from Oxford or Cambridge, right, and then you just go out into the world and do anything, after a certain amount of years, they give you an MPhil or an MA. Yes. Because... Yes, that's. I think I believe that to be the case. Because, right, because you're so brilliant that you've graduated from Oxbridge and you've carried on being in the world for two years, have an MPhil. Well... Everywhere else, right, you have to, you know, do papers and work. But no, 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 no. You went to Oxbridge. Right. Have, an, have another qualification. Still here. That's brilliant. Well, it's the bog off principle. It's the what? Bog off. Go on. Bog off. Buy one, get one free. That's how I got one. So that's where you go. Yeah, but no, but, but no, well you, no, you got one because you're famous. They don't give them to just anybody. But in the case of, of, of Oxbridge, at least this used to be the case. They do. Just by virtue of still being around, they go, oh, well, then you must know loads of stuff now. I got it because I survived... Being in Tossle flats. flats without becoming a witch, without being sacrificed on the altar. That's how I got it. That's mm. my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, anyway, okay, very good. Uh, are you a visiting fellow anywhere else, by the nope. way? No. Just, just Southampton, just where. I do some stuff at. Fa- I've done some stuff at Falmouth, but I'm not a visiting fellow there. I'm just a. Do, a du- do you ever do a double act? Who? You and good lady professor indoors. Yes. Really? Yes. Do, I, do you have to pay extra for that? That would be great. Can I come to that? If you want. Do you do double lectures? Yes. Like is it like the two Ronnies? It's exactly like the two Ronnies. That's exactly fantastic. what it's like. What do you What do you lecture on? Well, cinema. What do you think? Yeah, but what what kind of aspect of cinema? Uh, well, we did one in Falmouth, which was about. Um, we, actually, it was about film journalism and right, the difference in in academic writing and uh, journalistic writing. Uh, she does a, a. Anyway, that's enough. Thanks very much for listening. Yeah, uh, and and again, we'll thank run, you for. We're just taking too long, but it was. A but very, you asked me a question, and I was answering. I know, it was you very, are so rude. And it was a very good answer too. Yeah, go on. Thank you so much. Tossle. By the way, it's not Tom Hiddleston next week. It's Kerry Mulligan. How about that? Who knew? Who knew? Uh, certainly not me. Kerry Mulligan, always uh, something to look forward to. Uh, star of Suffragette. <laughs> and that's where we are next week. And wait, not wait, wait. When you were interviewing her, did you realise that it was Kerry Mulligan and not Tom Hiddleston? I have asked all the wrong questions to Tom Hiddleston. Very I asked good. Tom all about being in Suffragette and what it was like. Did you give Goo Goo? Did you look at Tom Hiddleston with Goo Goo eyes like you did when Kerry Mulligan was oh, in? Oh, yeah, yeah. Go- he is very good looking. Who, Tom Hiddleston? Yes. He is. Yes. Yes, he is. And you the saddle, Philly. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.